ladies and gentlemen, let's get going on today's episode. Episode number 81 is brought to you by Onnit. If you're a listener to the podcast, you'll know that Onnit is a strength and conditioning organization, a health and wellness optimization organization, and right now, they are having their semi-annual sale. Starting a week ago, about a week ago, I should say, <clears throat> April 22nd, Onnit is delivering the deepest discounts that you will see until Black Friday on all of your favorite products. Nothing is off limits. You can get their number one selling nootropic, Alpha Brain, all of their Marvel, Marvel and most of their Star Wars fitness equipment, and even their complete day and night supplement packs, Total Human. And to top it off, they're going to be offering free shipping. Now, there are some exclusions that do apply. What you can find is 25% off their supplements, 18% off of their fitness and certifications, 20% off of their foods, 50% off the digital downloads, DVDs, and books, and 30% off apparel and personal care. In addition to the massive price cuts, the more you buy, the more that you're going to unlock. So you're going to get a 10% off coupon, free shipping, and a premium free gift are available all of this year if you reach that purchasing criteria. So make this summer the best one of your life by stocking up now. The sale started on April 22nd, and it is ongoing, so don't miss out. There are free gifts and doorbusters, but they are in limited supply. So get on it, or you just might miss out. And that is it for sponsorship of today's episode. My guest today is the freshman Republican congressman from the 2nd District in Texas, Dan Crenshaw. Dan's, you know, got a pretty much a badass resume. He served in the United States Navy as a SEAL. Uh, he and I actually met, and I won't get too deep into it because we talk about it in the podcast, but I was a BUDS instructor. He was a BUDS student. He successfully made it through the training and continued on to an operational career in the SEAL teams where he was injured by an IED in 2012, lost his right eye in that IED strike, and after that began a successful career in politics. And he is three months into his first term, like I said, serving as the Republican congressman from the 2nd District here in Texas. And I had the opportunity to sit down with him in his hometown of Houston, chatted about, man, quite a bit. Everything from his military career, why he chose to serve, everything leading up until his injury, his recovery from the injury, the decision to enter politics, how he feels about his life in the spotlight after his decision to, in fact, run for the uh, vacating seat in Congress. What he thinks is working, what he thinks isn't working. It was a pretty awesome conversation. I hadn't seen him in years, six years, I believe, and it was great to finally reconnect, sit back down with him, and explore some of the ideas and principles that he is moving forward with in his life. So, without me talking anymore, Cleared Hot, episode number 81, with the newly minted congressman from the 2nd District of Texas, Daniel Crenshaw. Okay, I got the red smoke. Gun run! North and south! West of the smoke! West of the smoke! Okay, copy. West of the smoke. I'm looking at danger close now. Oh, what a man! Give it to me! I need it! You're clear hot! Captain, clear hot! Okay. All right, everything you say from here on out. How does the NCIS investigation start? I gotta go back. Hold on. Can be 
against you or <laughs> yeah something yeah, like that i'm a politician now so i'm well aware of how this works <sighs> yeah you are a politician now which we will get into how baffling that is to me but let's go way back right Do so we have to are you sure well we gotta go back a little bit <laughs> okay. um because we probably should explain to people how we know each other which That's is true through the navy but before we even get to that um, I was a bit of a mentor to you, if, if you recall. You can prefer, you know, describe it however <laughs> you like. We'll get to the actual details. Uh, no, it is funny how long we've known each other and the, uh, the, the path that our, uh, I don't know, our journeys each took us. But why the Navy? Why did you decide to join the Navy? Or actually, what were you doing up to that point? Talk me through where we actually met. Yeah, well, well how did I even get there, right? How did, we, how did I get to second phase? Or um, why even? Because yeah. post 9-11. Yeah. Well, uh, 9-11 had nothing to do with me joining the military. So that, that 9-11 occurred... Um, September uh, 11th. Well, <laughs> but I'm, thinking, I'm thinking back to like, what grade I was in. So I, was, uh, I, was, I just started my senior year. Um, and so I, I, was, I was heavily... I'd already decided years, years, and years before that that I wanted to be a Navy SEAL. So it, it, it didn't affect that decision one way or the other. I knew um, since I wanted to be... I knew I wanted to be a SEAL since I was 11, too. That's a, and that's a pretty normal story in the SEAL teams. For us, it's normal. For yeah. other people, when I travel around and talk to them, they're like, how could you possibly have known? And my answer to that is I have absolutely no idea. But it was yeah. one of the most common narratives inside of the community that I've ever been exposed to. It, it is, and here's why. Because you can't make it through that training unless you've always wanted it. Unless you never had a choice, right? And so you, we, we decided early on in life that we would not have a choice, that we would make it through that. Uh, no matter how mean our instructors were to us, and I'm, I'm motioning to you for those who are just listening. Yep. <laughs> Which you shouldn't because it was nice. <laughs> you're, you're a hugger, <laughs> as, as we would call you. Um, but uh, it's, it's, difficult, it's difficult to make it through Hell Week if, if you believe that you're there to try it out. You know, if you're, if you're, if you're just trying to see if you can make it. No, you already know you can make it prior, you're just, and you're willing to die to get there. And that's why, you know, and, and frankly, it takes some time to build up that mental capacity. And I think that's why those of us who wanted it from an early age, uh, we make it through. And that's why that, that story is so common. So did I'm you just, have people quit on the first day in your class? Of course. Yeah. It was. So thinking about everything that you just said, because this is something that baffled me. And um, when I describe people, the, the ability to see both sides of the coin going back and being an instructor, having been a student, wildly different experiences. One is much more enjoyable than the other. It's probably <laughs> the most memorable thing. Yeah. But you, as a student, you were aware that people were quitting, but you weren't really aware how many, the velocity and the volume, because you yeah. were continuing on with the evolution. As a second phase instructor and going and watching like the first day, just like you described, like if you showed up at Bud's and were there by accident, you have made... So many mistakes along the way. Like you had to volunteer and sign paperwork, and you would think that everybody yeah. would have that you same no mindset. No idea what you were getting into. <laughs> but 15 minutes into the first evolution, yeah. the first phase, almost every class, yeah. the bell starts ringing. So I wonder about those people. Like, What was their particular yeah. headspace? You should have them on a podcast. <laughs> I can't find any of them. Yeah, <laughs> well... And I'm sure some are listening and, you know, they've all got their own reasons and I don't like to judge, but it was just, it's a simple mental preparation. You, you didn't, you, there's no way that you went there knowing what you were getting into. Um, but it, so I, I was similar. I don't remember exactly what age I was, but it was probably around 11 or 12. And, uh, you know, I, I read Dick Marcinko's book, Rogue Warrior. Did you make the mistake that I did and think that that belonged in the nonfiction section? 
I wasn't sure. I didn't care. I just knew it was cool, right? Was, I'll give you that point was, for sure. It was uh, it was cool, right? And then you you start at an early age. You kind of you you start this sort of archetype of what you want to become, and uh, this this you know. And, it, and I think I think all of our our reasoning for wanting to join the SEAL teams is at an early age. It starts off with this sense of adventure and this this desire to go into combat and 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 be a warrior and all that. And I think it evolves over time into more a sense of duty and patriotism as we get older and mature more. But, th- but that's what it was. Um, you know, and once I was hooked, I was hooked. And, and every decision I made was 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 geared towards that goal. Uh, um, I, I did ROTC. I graduated. I was commissioned. I, I, I spent that entire four years in college trying to get into BUDS. I succeeded in that. Why did you go the college route versus enlisting uh, right out of high school? Well, um, Maybe just the way I grew up, I wanted to go to college, and um, I, I also wanted to to lead. Right, I, I was I, I was enamored by the idea of leading men into battle. Um, of course, it's not until you get to the SEAL teams you realize the chiefs do a lot of the leading as well. So whether you're enlisted or an officer, yeah, there's plenty of leadership opportunities. But and your first day on the job, there's not much expected of you, even if you are in a leadership <laughs> position. So you're going to be okay. Right, right. Uh, <laughs> as a junior officer, but that being said. Um, when it came to deployment, even even my what are, you know my even my second deployment, I I was running operations. I mean, it was I was still in charge, so I could I, I could certainly say that I was leading men into battle a lot earlier than I would have been if I had been enlisted. Okay. Oh, by your second deployment, yeah, you would have been because, well because I was the OIC. I, I was and yeah. I wasn't supposed to be the OIC. I ended up being the OIC. I'm uh, familiar with that yeah. playing out. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> that's right. You had something to do with that. <laughs> I yeah I forgot about that you yeah you were deeply involved in that we needed to make a uh, roster shift right right so <laughs> for so the my, betterment our, of the my, team so everybody listening understands my platoon commander had to relieve another platoon commander and then I became the platoon commander in Ramadi Iraq and so and I a, may or may not have been responsible for that other platoon commander yeah no longer yeah. Being, being a platoon commander <laughs> I, I forgot that you had a lot to do with that um, and so I mean what it ended up being though is a great leadership experience for me a little bit earlier in my career than, mm-hmm. I, than I would have normally gotten. And, uh, and that's why I joined, right? And because I, I, I wanted to, I wanted to do right by the guys I was leading, um, get them the right missions and, and do right by the, the mission that our country had, had said we were going to do. And, and I think we, I think we did that. Um, then unfortunately we left Iraq right after that deployment and then everything went to hell. But you That's why I got sh- into politics to make sure we don't make those kind of dumb decisions anymore. You guys were shutting down the SOTIF. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Okay. So yeah. we're talking, we're back in 2010. Yeah. Was that your, that was your second deployment? That was my second deployment. Okay. Because we first met, I was a BUDS instructor from OS. Okay. So that, expo- okay. So I was still a BUDS instructor when you graduated training, moved on and did your first deployment. Okay. Yes. And then we reconnected yeah. back at team three. All yeah. right. Mm-hmm. That makes sense to me. Yep. Good old class 264. Wow. You remember the class number? Yeah. Wasn't sure you would. Do you not remember the watch that I got in an incredible amount of trouble for that has <laughs> 264 in <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> I do remember that. I remember that. Oh, geez. Oh, yes. Um, that was a good time. So so you were our, you were our proctor. Yep. And um, maybe, maybe you should explain to people what that means. What does it mean? I think on paper, it's just the official <laughs> interface between the class. Right. I mean, each, it's You're like our liaison between the instructors yeah, and the class. That's probably you know, the best we, word. We see you the most, and uh, you, you give us your disappointed face the most. Uh, you guys disappointed me most often. Did we? Yes. We always wonder about that. <laughs> you know, it's like, 
this, this is the big game of being a student in buds is the instructors are always disappointed in you. And since I've never been an instructor, yeah. I never got to see You're how missing we out on life. I know. Trust me. I know. <laughs> I mean, it's so much fun. But like the, the funny game that, that students have to play is, are they really mad at us? Are they just joking? Is this part of the game? We don't know. I mean, it's, it's, it's this, it's this, they're always screwing with your head. I would so like to think I was pretty transparent. Really? I mean, like when I, you I don't were know if I'm legitimately disappointed in us. Yeah, your guys' class sucks sometimes. <laughs> That's fair. Mostly from the top. It started at the top and just worked its way down. You did like LIC our class was, leadership, yeah. Yeah, which was you. It was not me. <laughs> not at first. No, 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 no. I, I took over after you You got rid of our class leadership. Didn't get, there's, there's a, you're starting to see a pattern here in my career, right? Did he like fail full comp? Yeah. Was I responsible for that? Probably, Probably more than likely. Yeah, I had a hand in that, I think. Did I administer pool comp to you? No, you didn't. Mm, I, had, I had Drago. You probably had a harder test than I was going to administer then. No, not really. I had an interesting pool. I think he was fair. Yeah. I think he was fair. I, I would say my test was incredibly fair, but it was incredibly difficult. I yeah, passed yeah. few people, but everybody got exactly the same test. And bottom line is when you failed, I pulled you up and you failed. And when you passed, you passed. Mm-hmm. But you weren't going to get gifted. I don't like pool comp. I don't like pool comp it's either. It's one of my least favorite evolutions. It took buzz. me three tries. I would, I would go through Hell Week again. Well, that's ridiculous. <laughs> is it? Yeah. Seven days versus a maximum of 20 minutes. I don't think it was a maximum of 20 minutes. It, listen, on paper, it's a maximum of 20 minutes. Maybe that's an overstatement to say that I would go through Hell Week again. <laughs> I, did, I did get to pretend instructor once and, and run with Hell Week for just like a maybe an hour. Uh, and this was Wednesday, and that's when you really get a feel for how much these guys are getting beaten into the ground. And it's Wednesday, so Hell Week starts on Sunday, and this is Wednesday. I mean, they've run maybe a hundred miles yeah. by this point, maybe more actually, because I'm you know I think the estimate is maybe two hundred miles throughout the entire week. I've heard that estimate before. Well, if they're still using the old Chow Hall uh, back in those days, I mean that's that's three miles round trip. So I mean you're doing ten a day just for yeah. food. Plus in Hell Week, you're probably running there for mid rats. So but, I mean that's but even if they don't use the old chow hall, they're still making that distance sure. happen. Um, and this is what I've noticed as I've, as I've kept an eye on it, so to speak. Uh, <laughs> Jesus, man. <laughs> <on Hell Week>. <laughs> <laughs> uh, I got to get down there and secure a hell week. That'd be fun. Um, but, uh, but it was Wednesday and these guys were running. I mean, we were yep. running with them, you know, and they haven't slept for, you know, since Sunday. Uh, it, it's, it's impressive. Now after Wednesday, as you know, it, it, it dwindles down a little bit, but, it's that we are still driving these guys right into the ground. It's still it is still a trial by fire. I'm proud to say it is. Um, and again, one of the I actually find the most rewarding um, billet that I held was as a bud instructor. When I look back on my career, I actually I look back on that one the fondest because of being able to see you behind the curtain. Because when I went through yep. as a student, I, it was the same thing. I'm like, why is this guy yelling at me? I just repeated the same behavior that I did yesterday, and he was very happy. He was fine with it. Yeah. He was, not only was he fine with it, I got like a pseudo like three-quarters thumbs up. Right. So right. I'm like, okay, I need to do this behavior. Now I'm getting smashed. What's going on? And Hell Week was another interesting one because you're a zombie, as you know, going through it. Yeah. And uh, the instructors are required to augment the shifts. And it's funny to see the pace velocity and aggression that you start with and then it peaks at about Tuesday and then it has to shallow off even though the yeah. students don't know it because they're fried. Right. But right. otherwise you'll kill them. 
Yeah. Because they're exhausted. They're awake for so yeah. long. Their body is swollen completely. I mean, it's, yeah. it's, it's an interesting physiological experiment yeah. to take on people. I'm, it's, <laughs> it really is. In, and you watch, you watch injuries that you previously had, in a sense, go. they'll either get worse and you'll break. So that happened to me. I was in class 261 initially. I fractured my tibia in the middle of hell week, and then I had to restart it. And then that injury didn't really, it was still bothering me in 264, but then it just went away. So it'll either get worse and break you, or it'll heal itself. There's this, and I'm not the only person. I'm not the only person to have told this story. This is this is a fairly normal thing that happens. There's something that almost resets inside your body, and it's inexplicable. I really don't know what it is. It's this. It's that whole week is a. You know, more people should try that out. I don't know if they have the facilities and the staff for have more people try that out. No. Maybe you should start a company. I'm going to pass on that too because yeah, there's enough just, facilities and staff. You have know, you know, people already doing that for you, a profit. You think you'd get a lot of demand signal out there for uh, people to go through your hell week? You know, I actually think a lot of people would pay for it, but I just have no desire to try to, what would be the word, uh, modify that for a civilian market. because yeah. Some people have tried. I've seen it happen. Some people have tried and seen it. Um, to truly give them the full experience, you would probably net a prison sentence at the end of that for what yeah. you would do. I think so. Yeah, <laughs> people are not prepared. The way, yeah. Again, it's not something you can just go decide yeah. to do. And USAA is probably not going to ensure yeah. or have a policy for that evolution. So I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to take a pass. Plus, I think uh, what I have seen at least in my time post-military that the vast majority of the lessons learned, you don't have to go through that difficult of an evolution. And you can, if, you're, if you can connect the dots in between the ears for people... Yeah, you can get to a lot of the lessons learned without having to actually do anything physical. If you can kind of change our perspective and awaken right. a different thought process, you can get them there. That's right, and that gets to a, a deeper point about how do you build mental toughness and resilience. And a lesson I tell people a lot is just do something really hard. Yeah, but do something hard for you. It doesn't have to be what I perceive to be hard. It doesn't have to be hell week. It has to be hard for you. It has to push your limits in some way. And there will be this awakening that I think occurs. And and you start to believe because of that. Well, when you gain confidence, and then you start to believe that you can handle more adversity. Yeah. So it's uh, there's there's there is a deeper process to why we do Hell Week. I mean, I look back at my life. The things that were the most difficult for me to achieve have the most value. Of course, you know, Hell Week being one of them, making it into the community that I'd wanted to been in, wanted to be in since I was barely double digits in age. To having kids, you know, you want, I mean, that's not easy. Yeah. I have three kids now, one of which wants to learn how to drive. I'm like, dude, you can learn when you're 30. Get out of here. <laughs> you know, what's, what's this? You're almost 16. No, you're not. You're 12. Get out. <laughs> wow, I didn't realize your kids were that old. I got a kid in high school, man. How old are you? I'm old enough. <laughs> Come on, just tell us. Inside, 87. <laughs> My driver's license says I'm 41. Yeah? Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Okay. My body doesn't feel awesome most days that I wake up, but I mean, I had kids pretty young, though, too. I mean, when we met... I already had, yeah, I'd already had all three of my kids by the time that we met, or I was just getting ready to have my daughter. Wow. Because I picked up, awesome. yeah, my commission. I think huh. I got my notification that I was going to get commissioned when your class was going through second phase. Right. So, uh, so t- what about uh, post buds? Where'd you go? Talk. So, yeah, career. so we, we met in second phase, of course. Um, I got through that, went through third phase, and. Post buzz, I went to SEAL Team 3, went to Fallujah, my first deployment in Iraq, and second second deployment we talked about a little bit, also Iraq. And uh, third deployment, still was SEAL Team 3, although mm-hmm. I was technically attached to, to, to SA-1. But 
for for the purpose of this podcast, it was still Team Three. Um, I was back with my old platoon in Afghanistan, and uh, this is where this is where my life sort of diverged. Of course, about six seven months into that deployment, this was a maybe a nine month deployment mm-hmm. that we were doing. And uh, where were you guys? We were operating out of Kandahar, so we were down south. Yeah, we were. Um, we were at Kandahar Airfield. We were partnered with the Afghan commando units. And so we would, we would do missions throughout the entire province. And the, the southern part of that province leading into Helmand to the west was uh, heavily, you know, the, the main threat there is IEDs. I mean, they're, they're everywhere. They're not just on pathways or doorways or where you would think they would be. They're just everywhere. It's a very randomized um, placement system that they have. Because Isn't it because also the most heavily mined country on earth as well? I mean, it's got to be with older, mi- like yeah. older Soviet I mean, Yeah, mines, just everything probably. that's left over. Yeah. I'm sure it is. I don't know that we really found a lot of those. It's mostly what's scared. And if we did, I don't think they would work. Um, I never found a single one, but I thought about it on every single step that I took. Well, what we were thinking about was the, the, the ones, you know, these, uh, that these Taliban created, which are, really rudimentary they're they're just a plywood and wrapped in maybe some wire maybe i mean they might even figure they, they had some other ways of getting metal out of them completely and still be able to detonate and um i mean they're, they're cheap they're easy to make and they're devastating you know and uh we, we we'd already had a few of our guys get blown up on, on the the afghans get blown up um they would usually lose both legs uh there was because we're talking about 10 to 15 pounds of of explosives and were they putting it on artillery shells or just HME? Uh, it was just it was like a fertilizer base. Okay, that they would just pack in there. Um, so yeah, HME, which uh, stands for homemade explosive. Yeah, for those of you who are wondering what the hell we're yeah, talking about, just, yeah, we make it sound really official, but it just means yeah. some people got together and and made some stuff. Think and, of a Home Depot project. Yeah, but a really a really dangerous one, and using fertilizer that would it would basically be illegal here. Um, Probably. So. The uh, so on this particular day where I got hurt, we were responding to uh, uh, troops in contact uh, that some Marine Special Operations guys were in out in Helmand, uh, just over the border from Kandahar. So we obviously we, we, this was not a place we would normally operate, but the Siege of Soda, the higher echelons of command wanted us to go out there and relieve them, uh, and there's all sorts of reasons behind that, but. Um, we would always insert into the into the early morning. We wanted to. We always wanted to arrive at night, hole up somewhere, and then we would start moving throughout the day. Um, it, it's a good way to do things because it doesn't. It, it 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 ensures that the enemy doesn't arm the IEDs. They can't keep them armed all the time. So that's the one benefit we have. If they keep them armed all the time, the batteries run out and and they're useless. So there's there's a way to move around where we can avoid that. Now the problem in this case was. People had been there for a few days already, so these things were already armed. Yep. Um, this wasn't like we were coming in on a new operation. And um, as, as we moved to a certain compound, we hadn't been perfectly cleared yet. Uh, we were, I, was, I was actually with my EOD guy as, as they were clearing it, but the, the place was flooded. It wasn't, it wasn't well executed, let's just say that. And uh, one, of my, one of my Afghan interpreters were, was responding to a call and uh, he stepped on it right in front of me. So maybe the distance you and I are sitting at right now was, was probably the distance we were at, you know, just a couple feet. And uh, he he it was it was a large enough explosion. It took both his arms and both his legs right away. And um, and that that 
might have been a factor of how big it was, but also how much metal and, and hard rock was packed into it. This was very hard ground, so it was not mm-hmm. soft dirt the way it sometimes is. So, so everything turned into shrapnel, essentially? Yeah, I mean, I had a bolt in my hand that they removed, like, you know, a couple of weeks later. So, I mean, just to give you an idea, and the, the things that came into my eyes were, were wires and shrapnel of, of a metal type, and those things continued to come out of my body over time. But, uh, so... That happened, and it didn't knock me unconscious. I sort of, it kind of feels like a truck hits you, and, but there's also a bunch of guys in the truck shooting you with a shotgun and pouring Tabasco sauce all over your body. Like That's, that's sort of yeah. what getting blown up feels like. Um, Did with, you hear it, or was it so loud that it was overwhelmed your ears? Um, it, it's just like a shock. So, yeah, I, I, so I would say, yes, I certainly heard it, and you're... And, and, and you, and, and you're knocked down. It just feels like you got punched really, really hard, but in the way that I just described. Um, so it's just it's just a big shock, right? And and then and you're you're not sure what happened. My immediate reaction was um, feel my legs because I want to see. You know, you're just you, you go into yeah. immediate like battle damage assessment mode, fingers and toes, yeah, like, yep. like what's happening. And um, it's a big relief to see your legs still there because there's a ton of pain down there. My the, you know my eyes are my permanent damage, but the but the the blast really rocked my knees and up. So knees down, there's really nothing. There's there's no shrapnel wounds because, well, just the angle of the blast. Right. So you say so it was buried, so it was angling up at you essentially. Yes. Okay. Yes, because it was again, it was like about this distance. So that angle started at my my knees. Um, so I had the heaviest the heaviest wounds would probably be from the knees up to the torso area and then oh then my face looked like I got hit in the face with a shotgun that's that's what it looked like even a week later in the one picture I do have um so it wasn't good it was it was it was a painful experience I guess but it was interesting about it it wasn't painful for my eyes I just assumed this entire time that I had dirt in my eyes could you still see a little bit no no I it's interesting because I I have memories of seeing but I don't there's you don't no think you had the ability I, to I, see I was, I was not actually seeing Huh. Um, and I, uh, so I was able to eventually kind of get up and walk away from it. Um, not like, not just walk off into the distance. Okay. Just, that's not what happened. That but you we walk, see. Walk, 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 <laughs> walk, walk to the medevac helicopter when it did come about 45 minutes later. Um, and you know, th- this, by the way, this, this idea that there was nothing wrong with my eyes and that I would just see again, this, this persisted for a while actually. Um, to my benefit, because it kept me sane. Mm-hmm. Um, I think the worst thing in the world is to worry when you're you're already in a terrible condition. Um, uh, I, I, adding anxiety on top of that would have would have would have been pretty insufferable, and um, hard to say why I believe that. Like, who, who knows? Who cares? Divine intervention, call it God's strength working for, through you. I don't know, but it worked, and it kept me somewhat more sane. So I woke up about five days later because I mean, as soon as I got on the medevac, they uh, they they knocked me out. Um, I was in bad enough condition that they they didn't want me awake anymore, and I didn't wake up until I was in Germany. So they moved me a couple times around in Afghanistan, and and uh, they, that's when they were enucleated, which means removed my right eye. Um, it's uh, you know because they they deemed that unsavable at that point, and they were hoping that. They could save my left eye, and, and the way to better do that is to actually remove one of your eyes, so that your body isn't trying to save that, isn't trying to heal that eye. That's that's the. That's so it focuses I, all of its <clears throat> healing energy, for lack of a better word, or time right. and effort you're, on you're, the right. Your body will keep trying to heal both, 
if it, if it's there, if you remove it, the idea is that it's not putting resources towards that. That's the uh, that's the explanation I heard. Okay. So you got on a helicopter, you walked yourself to a helicopter, had two eyes in Afghanistan. Yeah. And then did you have any sensation of time passing or you just woke up and then you had one eye and you were in Germany? Correct. Correct. Yeah. <laughs> um, so, yeah. And um, that's going to be a little bit unsettling, I can imagine. It was. It wasn't that surprising, I guess. I don't know. Um, it's it's hard to put myself back in that mindset. I mean, I knew something bad had happened, so it wasn't it wasn't like I woke up and they told me that, and I had this big reaction. I mean, this is always my surprised face. Yeah, <laughs> every, on, on all, in all situations, whether I'm happy or sad, it's it's, it's the face you're looking at now. Um, that's <laughs> that's generally fair enough. So. Um, I, I kind of take uh, most things, most news that I get, I take it, and I'm just like, okay, let's internalize that, and then and then and go from there. Um, it, 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 you know, I can always we can trace that react. Most team guys, I think, are like that, and you can trace that back to maybe pool comp. Pool comp is where or even before, yeah, but pool comp is a place where you really learn to internalize emotion and just get that next procedure done because you can't breathe and you need to get it done so that you can breathe. <laughs> when I try to explain to people what pool comp is and I tell them that it's a diving test that has nothing to do with diving. Yeah, well, that's true. They sit there and they go, what are you talking about? It's, it's underwater, right? You're wearing diving gear. I'm like, yes, that is, that is the, how the evolution is executed, but it's about being able to control your emotions and follow procedure regardless of what your body is telling you to do. Right. That's what it is. It's, yeah. it's, it's you know, and you, you can you can trace all these lessons back to an old adage, which is like count to 10. You know, count to 10, calm yourself down, count to 10 and, and get something done. Um, you know, things, things your grandma taught you. Um, so, so, so we were back in Germany. The, the other issue I was having was I was hallucinating constantly. So maybe this is why that I, I thought is that from the meds, I thought that I could see, no, it was your optic nerve still fires. So oh it's, it's kind of like phantom pain. And, um, it, when you go blind, suddenly there's still an optic nerve trying to tr trying to figure something out. So what I was seeing was Afghanistan. I was I would I would know where I was. I, I was I was I was not delirious in any way. I knew I was in Germany. Um, I had some friends come up and, and actually travel with me so that I wasn't alone during that whole time. And I would know they're next to me, and but I would see them as an Afghan like villager. <laughs> I would see our piles of weapons as if we were still on a mission, like you know when we were just putting our guns over there or something. I would see kind of mud huts and, and mud walls around us. It's just what I would see all the time for, for days. So th this eventually becomes really pretty problematic. It becomes pretty awful because... Yeah, how do you navigate your way through that? Um, it, it, you just... You just do, <laughs> like, because you don't have a choice. Like, at a certain point, it's like, well, I could just complain about it and, and lose my mind or, you know... So you're essentially in an it. IMAX movie, a 3D IMAX movie, and you can't yeah. get out of the seat. You can't, and it's really awful when you're when you do fall asleep for just because I when I wasn't sleeping much, I was in I was in a ton of pain. My my body was very swollen at this time. There was no way I could get up and walk anymore. You know, I got up and walked after the blast because the adrenaline's still going, yep. and and you just have to do what you have to do. You're not going to have guys carry you because they'll never let you forget that. <laughs> this is an accurate point. <laughs> yeah, and so. Um, but my body was really messed up by like, I mean, I couldn't move, uh, for, for days in, in a hospital bed. So, um, uh, yeah, I don't know. You just deal with it. I mean, I, I'm always, I always had somebody to talk to, I think. And, um, 
you know, we could, we could, we could dull the pain with, with medication. And it was just a conversation about when I could back, get back to the Bethesda to do the surgery that would hopefully save my left eye. Mm-hmm. And so that was, that was my big hope. So that's what I held on to, right? I'm, 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 I'm looking forward to getting my eye fixed. Did you have vision at all family. in your left eye at no. this point? No. Um, it was completely blind because there was a, so there was a cataract in my left eye. So if they did, if they did open up the patch over it mm-hmm. and they shined a light in it, what I would see was like a cloud. I would see, I would see like an interesting, almost heavenly like cloud. And that's just kind of what you see if you have a cataract. So the blast, the blast gave me a cataract, a trauma induced cataract, which means the lens that's in the middle of your eye got shot out. That's, that's what that means. Um, and so obviously, and, and of course, along with that, there's damage to my cornea, there's damage to my iris, that, which still exists. Like my iris can't close and open the way yours can. Mm-hmm. So I'm very sensitive to light. Um, and there was damage to my retina as well, which they would find later and which would require this whole other set of surgeries that, that would have, that almost made me go blind again. So the, 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 the miracle that happened is I did eventually get to Bethesda. We did this surgery Somebody finally asked why I was hallucinating so much and gave me a shot of medication. And this is before I even had the surgery. So, I mean, I was blind for a long time. This is, this is weeks. And um, they finally gave me a, a, some, basically an anti-anxiety medicine that would make it go black. Because I, I would dream and then wake up in that dream and be unable to escape it. It's, 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 you're literally living in a nightmare. So it's, Dude. It's, it's not cool. <laughs> it's not, it eventually, no, gets that old. doesn't sound cool. At it all. eventually gets old. And so eventually a nurse was like, how long has this been going on? And we're like the whole time, seven to 10 weeks. What's yeah. your problem? <laughs> yeah, <that's, laughs> no, it's just, it wasn't great. Um, but how we, long but, was but it? We got over that. Okay. Hold on. How long, <laughs> we got, how long were you experiencing these hallucinate, uh, hallucinations before you said something to anybody? Well, I just, I don't know, frankly. It, it's hard to... I was hoping you were going to say like 10 weeks. 10 like I weeks. just ate it for 10 yeah, weeks. I just, <laughs> well, I de- well, I would definitely say it to like my friends. You know, like they, everybody around me knew. But, it, you know, I would, you know, realistically, it was this, this maybe went on for a week or two. That's um, a really long time to live in a movie. It's horrible. Yeah, it's not great. <laughs> like I said, it's not great. Right. And when they finally gave me the, I think it was Ativan, um, I continued hallucinating pretty heavily, but I saw Christmas. I was actually seeing Christmas, like a Christmas elf world for like three hours, and then it went black. I promise you this is true. I believe you. I'm just thinking in my head I would have snapped long before this ever happened. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, you just don't have a choice. It all goes back to choice. I mean, you can can choose to, to react in a way that isn't helpful, or you can choose not to. And, uh, you, and the reality is, is you probably would have chosen to react the same way I did because you don't have a choice. Yeah. And, um, and you, you, you've been shot. You've been, you've been through hard moments as well. And, and if you can choose to react in an in a unproductive way, but I don't really see the point in that. It's unproductive. It's unproductive. <laughs> <laughs> uh, so, so that happened. Um, they did the surgery. They were happy with it. That was very exciting. We had some hope. Um, then they did, they definitely didn't think I'd see as well as I do now. So, I mean, I, I'm correctable at least right now. So I'm wearing a contact as you can see me now and it corrects distance pretty well. Um, I can't see up close. I've got to wear seeing glasses, but it, what's your vision now? Correctable. Well, correctable. It's almost 2020. That's awesome. It's, it's like a practically 2020, you know, it, it's pretty good. Like, I mean, I can sort of read a license plate out there. Not bad. Yeah. You know, it, it's, it's practically 2020. It's, it's correct. It's, it's, it's truly correctable now. 
I've got a lot of blind spots. My retina has damage. Uh, they found another problem that almost made me go blind again with a retinal degeneration. And you have to do a, a pretty invasive surgery to make that stop. Please then, tell me you're not awake for that. Oh, you're definitely not awake. Because uh, I had PRK, and you're definitely awake for that. And let's not, uh, I am not comparing what PRK yeah, is that yeah. I had. Oh, please tell me about your eye problems, I know. Andy. You don't understand. How hard was it? You don't understand. I don't. I was in that place for 30 minutes. 30 well, minutes. <laughs> And your eyes were sore afterwards. You had to. Well, they were they also the itchy. Eye they, they were, were itchy. itchy. Yeah. So bad. <laughs> I no. can't even imagine. Actually, I can't because I've had PRK. Yeah. I had perfect vision before I got blown up. Yeah. No, my, <laughs> point, my point being is that you had no choice but to watch what they were doing. And I would have much preferred to not participate in that no, particular no. activity. No, because this is far more invasive than PRK. PRK is they kind of hold your eye open and then they laser it. Yeah. Um, and it literally takes like nine seconds. Yeah, it's pretty amazing. <laughs> it goes, da, 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 and you're like, okay, next die. The, the, the miracle of the world we live in. Yeah. Um, so no, this one, what they have to do, and I can, I'll try and explain this really quickly because we don't want to do this entire show, I'm sure, on, on my injuries. But We get six hours left. You're good. Oh, great. <laughs> <laughs> Just kidding. <laughs> <laughs> they, uh, when, when, when your retina is degenerating, meaning there's a hole in it, it will continue to expand. And so the way to make this stop is they remove a membrane on the back of your retina because that membrane causes tension and it allows that hole to keep expanding. So all they have to do is take off the membrane. They, they figured this out some time ago. This is actually a pretty normal surgery in older folks. And, um, hmm. and it's, not that, you know, it's not that risky for them. It's highly risky for me because my eye was so weak and damaged in the first damaged, place. And it's like, man, we just don't want to do another invasive surgery on this guy's eye. But, but the question was, okay, you will go blind slowly with the macular degeneration or you'll go blind right away because this surgery could make you go blind right away. So we're like, mm -hmm. well, let's just try it and hope. And maybe I'll go blind right away, but at least we, we, we give it a shot and we did. Worked out just fine. But I was blind for another six weeks because that's the recovery. So um, Was the recovery of your vision in your left eye, did that break the hallucina uh, hallucinations because you had that visual. Oh input. yeah, but 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 the hallucinations did break before that because okay. of the medication. The medication yeah, right. So it was just it went black. Yeah, but it probably provided an escape because then you actually were getting some active oh. input. Oh yeah, yeah, that that makes it all go away. Sure. So what did your career look like post recovery? I think the last actually when was the last time we saw each other? I was thinking about this on the way over here. I don't know. I think it was in the gym I, behind I, Team I, Three I years do, ago. I do remember that. Um, you had a stack of uh, your medical records. Yeah, I was I was medically or going through the yeah. uh, PEB MEB board process. Yep, I and do that had to that. have been 2013. That could long, be the last yeah. time we saw each other. Yeah, that was a long time ago. Yeah, and you got out 2016. Yep, late late 2016. So I I, I fought the system quite a bit. Um, Shocker. This this was the this was the advice. I remember that conversation because this was in the this was in the midst of me fighting the system, and I remember you talking to me about it. And, um, you know, and I, and I think you were, you were telling me like, there is a life after the SEAL teams. And I was like, no, there's not, <laughs> there can't possibly be. So again, I figured profound it out. Like, guidance that profound, I was giving you. Profound guidance. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> and, uh, and, and so, uh, but I didn't listen to you. And so I can't, never have, nothing never, has changed since nothing, the first day we met. Nothing has changed. <laughs> and so I continued to fight that system. We, we tried to get medical waivers. We, we found other ways. So I did deploy again. I went, yeah. I went back as a, as a troop commander for, and, uh, and deployed back to the Middle East and Bahrain. And, uh, and then again, again, on a kind of a different kind of deployment in Korea, mm. different, but similar. Um, 
let's just say that fair enough uh, back at back in uh in, in late 2016 although by that time i was they were going to retire me i mean the, the command had basically given up on trying to fight the system and and trying to to get me a waiver to deploy it was too difficult mostly because of my left eye with one eye they could maybe figure out how to how to work around the medical issues but but the fact that i had one eye that needed a contact to really to really function mm -hmm. um we just we just couldn't they, we just we couldn't make it work and um could you not pass like the dive jump physical or what was the stumbling block that you were bouncing yeah, up against yeah the dive jump physical because there's just there's certain check boxes in those physicals that say pretty emphatically like do you have one eye <laughs> like, yeah you know and it, and it, you know and no. if the answer to that is yes you are yeah, disqualified right you're, you're clearly disqualified yeah. and then you need a waiver if we want to actually qualify you to deploy and so um we, we just couldn't fight it anymore you know there's yeah. there's we could talk about that for an hour about about the and what's wrong with that frankly i mean again a lot of my lessons that i've learned they, they, they do fit into policy i mean are we is, is it really intelligent for the department of defense to be medically retiring people before they're ready we can find places for people with a good amount of experience and still have some skills to offer the military we can find a place for them instead of retiring them and then putting them on a taxpayer funded you know, retirement for the rest of their lives. I'm not so sure that's a good use of taxpayer money or a good use of the skills and, and the training that we've given a lot of these people who don't want to leave. So I mean, this I happens think, pretty often. I can think off the top of my head, somebody with your experience, you were at the 10-year point in your career, which is the same point that I went back as a BUDS instructor. Mm -hmm. I, could, I could rattle off five positions that you could go to sequentially from there that could give back, whether from a yeah. leadership perspective, a tactical perspective, a mentorship. Yeah, yeah I agree with you. It's, there's, it's, there's plenty to do. Yeah, and um, what now, sucks is it seems in the SEAL teams, it's like you either fit the circle peg in the circle hole, or yeah, see you later. And we're better about it than most. Yeah, you know, that's you know, a good that, point. You know, and then it's so fair. so you've got you've got to free up. This is this is the case with all federal government agencies too. It's not just the the, the military. You've got to you've got to establish some boundaries and then free up people to make creative flexible decisions and you, you'll generally come out on top now there is some risk involved with that of course this is because we're, we're, what we're basically talking about is more decentralized command there is some risk involved in that but for the most part you're going to get a better outcome uh, that's my belief i mean it's, it's it's what makes me a conservative politician well you get better buy-in from the people as well if they right. feel like they have a hand in their own fate you got to empower people you know that's that's always the case and uh now i'm not i'm not complaining in hindsight right like everything happens for a reason i believe and obstacles aren't really obstacles they're just kind of rocks in a river that are moving you around and moving you a different direction that that's all well and good i wouldn't be where i am today if i had if i had succeeded in fighting the system so you know i, I what i certainly don't have is any kind of resentment you know and um you know i, I had this conversation with our uh, our commandant at the time when they sat down and told me like we are putting you through a med board, whether you like it or not. You are going to find another way to contribute to the SEAL teams later on. And I said, no, it's not possible. <laughs> it's like, you know what? It is possible. They, it, said, they yeah. sat you down and had the talk. Yeah. Dan, listen. <laughs> You're going. <laughs> You've submitted 50 waivers. <laughs> there will not be a 51st. <laughs> <laughs> right. And they were right. Yeah. You know, and they were right. So, um, you know, resentment is, is, is a use, is one of those, another uh, unproductive, useless emotion. So... That happened, and uh, late 2016, I was out. I knew I wanted to stay in, in public policy, whatever that meant. It wasn't clear what that meant yet. I mean, so I... So I, did you have political aspirations while you were still in the military? No. Um, nope. I didn't even have them when I was in grad school. So okay. So the... Uh, Which, where'd you go to grad school? Harvard. 
course heard of it. Whatever. <laughs> I did. It's an online college, right? Yeah, it's a little community college yeah. out in Cambridge. That's what I thought. So, <laughs> <laughs> so the uh, it, it's UC Santa Cruz of the East. There you go. Oh, the banana slugs of yeah. the East. I got it. Yeah, giving you. <clears throat> did you know that UC Santa Cruz for a long time only had pass fail grades, mm-hmm. which I would imagine is a bitch when somebody asks you your GPA. Yeah, well, I passed. Passed, bro. My GPA is a that's, pass. That's, 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 yeah. <laughs> I'm sure that Harvard works. isn't that different. <laughs> but imagine trying to apply for like another, uh, you know, further education and like it's based off of a ranking system. Oh, that's your undergrad? GPA. Yeah. Yeah, you, that's not good for undergrad. No, it's. I don't think it's good for anything to yeah. just be told pass, fail. Well, grad school, sometimes I can sort of see the logic there but but not undergrad because yeah. for the reason you just explained yeah like when you, you're yeah competing against the people going to mit and right. you're like yes my gpa is a pass yeah <laughs> that's all i need to know best ever yeah my favorite activity is to sit at the lighthouse and smoke weed what i don't yeah. i'm not getting into this <laughs> school <laughs> so why not um so okay so when you were in because I, I, I didn't want to ask you that one when your thoughts of getting involved in politics mm-hmm. because as far as I'm concerned, you're out of your goddamn mind being yeah. involved in politics. So the my I would say, and, it, and it, you can look at like my Facebook history is the only indicator of this, is when I started becoming more interested in politics, I started talking politics more and more and more and sort of the, my, the political framework with which I view government started to materialize more later in life. I mean, keep in mind, I grew up abroad mostly. I went to high school in Bogota, Colombia. The, 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 the notions of Democrat, Republican, and liberal conservative, they were not really in my face. I was For me, it was more about international versus national issues mm-hmm. because I've lived abroad so much, and then I went to Tufts University, pretty liberal college. Um, but this was, you know, I graduated in 2006. I don't feel like politics was front and center um, you major in, in? in every class, international relations. And uh, I did a minor in physics. And so maybe, the, maybe it was the, the nature of the courses that I took that, that – the domestic politics were not really front and center. So I was not swayed one way or the other. I think I certainly leaned conservative just intrinsically. And this is, this is more a product of, of what you prioritize um, as far as your moral principles go. And I could get into a long conversation about that if you'd like. But, but there's, we're, we're sort of, our brains are sort of wired one way or the other. Generally speaking, there's personality characteristics that will define whether you're liberal or conservative. Um, but I didn't really think about the politics of it just yet. It was only a few years before getting out of the military that I even really got into it. And, and then I went to Harvard really with an eye, again, so to speak, on looking. <laughs> only, only you can get away with saying yeah. that. <laughs> well, all my buddies from the teams definitely try to go, get away with it on every, every chance they get. Well, that's fair. We're going to make a bad eye joke. That's um, a special community that has no yeah, rules. Yeah. And uh, the same with the Twitter haters. They really like, I mean, because they got nothing except for, we hate you so much, you one eyed. Oh, my God. There's only one pool of humanity that is lower than that's Twitter. Tw- <laughs> Which one? YouTube comments. Oh really? Yeah. In uh, my opinion, I it goes. Even look at those YouTube comments, Twitter, and I guess everything else would be a step above that. Yeah. But it is the lowest oh, rungs man. of humanity Twitter that I've ever is, encountered. <laughs> Twitter needs to lighten up. <laughs> like Instagram is so nice. My Instagram comments are always they're always fun. They're positive. You know, even Facebook. It's, Facebook's a little bit more more of a mix, but yeah. Twitter's just boom. Anyway. Yeah. So, um, what were we talking about? Tufts. Yeah. So. Okay, but then Harvard after the military. And so um, I didn't have any political aspirations at Harvard. Now, Harvard, the Kennedy School in particular, because I did a public policy degree, they, it, it is a highly political school in the sense that they're trying to teach people 
how to run for office. They 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 push that agenda a little bit. They're and actually I, basically teaching that. There's a class called how to make how to become a politician. I mean, there's a class called Damn. how to run a campaign. You know, so they it, it, and this is good. I mean, I'm not. This is it's it's cool that they have this stuff. I didn't along, know that existed along, along with all of the policy attributes um, that they do. And so and you can you can there's a whole wide variety. Now I focused more on domestic economics and, and national security issues because what I was really looking at was a maybe a, a policy job in national security. You know, that would that would be a, a good segue from the SEAL teams, I would think. Mm-hmm. And, um, and that was actually almost what I did. I almost took a job doing counterweapons and mass destruction issues at uh, the Department of Defense. And that same day, uh, my hometown congressman, Ted Poe, announced retirement here in the 2nd District, where we are right now. And uh, slept on it, then decided to go for it. <laughs> that, was, that was it. I mean, that's, that's how it happened. It's not, now, did we have in the back of our mind, my wife and I, thinking political office down the road you're definitely gonna get that bug in your ear if you've if you've been doing a master's degree where you mm-hmm. see that stuff put out there and, and you start to realize that if you want to have an impact on a wide variety of issues not just counterweapons of mass destruction if you want to have an impact on a lot of different issues then you have to be in political office there is there is no other way to do that um to have that influence and to have that impact and and uh, impact is really what it comes down to. There's, if there's one good reason why you should be in political office versus something else, it's the ability to truly impact a lot of different things and influence. So when you say you slept on it and then went for it, yeah. what does that look like the day you wake up yeah. and you're like, all right, I'm going for this? Well, you, okay, that, that's a good question because a lot of people don't realize, like, okay, <laughs> what, what does that take? Um, well, first you have to sign up. Like you have to, you have to go to the, the to a the, step that would trip up eighty percent of people. Yeah, like, yeah. You just you got to pick your name. You got to get your name on the ballot, you know. And um, and you either have to. You basically pay. declare you're running. Yeah, you declare. Yeah. And uh, there's there's a quick sign up process to do that. And then boom, you're in. And uh, but then then you gotta you gotta do the basics. You gotta get a headshot. You gotta get uh, a website. You've gotta you gotta figure out like what your logo is. You've gotta figure out what your talking points are. I mean, we're jumping into this in November of 2017 and the primary is March of 2018. So this is, this is a very unusual way to run for office. Yeah. Five months for Congress. Out. Yeah. I mean, it, and it's really even less because this is late November. Nobody's campaigning in December. This is the holidays. January, you're sort of just starting, but you haven't raised much money. Nobody wants to help you. By the time early February hits, early ballots, those mail-in ballots that go to senior citizens are already going out. And you and you're not even sure if people have heard of you yet. And it's, it turns out nobody had heard of me yet. So I lost all those. Um, early voting in Texas starts two weeks out. So, um, and then election day is March sixth. So this this is this is a very limited amount of time. If yeah. you're going to run for Congress, you should generally start about a year out and, and start telling people and start raising money and start, you know, getting your name out there. It's, this is a long process. Um, we did it in just a couple months, and, and and to be fair, so did everybody. Everybody jumped into that race because when, of the announcement of when, the when, uh, retirement. When, yeah, he announced pretty you know late, a few weeks before the deadline to jump into it. Actually, why did he choose to do that? I gotta ask him that someday because it seems like he actually put anybody who might replace him at a disadvantage. Well, actually, what he did by doing that was equalize the playing field. I think. Oh, because everybody was behind the power curve. Right, because everybody's behind the power curve. Um, now, well, you know what? The counter argument to that is that I would have had a much bigger advantage if I had been able to start earlier. So, because of what I was, I was at a huge disadvantage to the people who could put millions of dollars into their own campaign. Uh, so there was, 
and, and which was at, at least at least a few of those competitors, uh, nine of us in total. Everybody had the ability to put tens of thousands of dollars into their own campaign. Mm-hmm. Um, a, a couple had the ability to put millions, and so it, it was not an easy. This was a highly competitive race because, especially for the Republicans, because well, it's a Republican seat, so whoever wins the primary is very likely to win the general. Was was the thought going into it? So you're going to put a lot of effort into winning that primary. Um, so yeah, if I had had more time, I could have gotten more votes. I could have gotten more people to, to, to figure me out and I would have been able to go to more restaurants and shake people's hands, knock on more doors. So more time would have been better. (laughs) What's your thoughts? I mean, how was that experience of going to restaurants and knocking on doors and how much of the, of your time was spent actually fundraising? You're talking about the money that people put into their campaigns. Well, much more time than you would like is in generally in in politics is is spent fundraising. Um, I, I wish... I wish everybody would just donate to us, but they don't. But hey, you can go to CrenshawForCongress.com and, and <laughs> donate right now. Oh, I'll put a link on the uh, yeah. podcast description. Crenshaw be for Congress. But just you're in Congress. that a couple more times. You don't need any more money. You're always, in Congress. Always fundraising. <laughs> always fundraising. You have to. There are, I already have an opponent for the next time. Haven't you only been in office for three months? Yep. <laughs> this is how... This is, I'm a target. I'm, I'm definitely a target from, from the left. So it is what it is. But th- th- this is just the nature of the game, and these are two-year terms. So, yeah, yeah I mean, it's right away. You know, Would you want to do another two-year term? Which is, I mean, it's probably a little premature question, given yeah. you've been at it for three months. But Oh, well, definitely. I mean, I'm already running. You know, it's, it's not a, yeah, I mean, we're, we're definitely going for it again. Uh, we're not going to quit this early. Come on, man. You know, remember, this is like the first 15 minutes of buds. Like, you've got to think the Third of the class is already yeah. turning the bell into yeah, the Philharmonic. That's true. That's true. <laughs> but, uh, no, we'll, we'll, definitely, we'll definitely run again. Uh, in, in 2020 and uh, you know there's it's it's this gets into the question of whether you like the job or not and, and and so far I do I mean I I didn't have any different expectations really of what it would be um, I'm not naive I'm not idealistic I, I know how hard things are to get done in, in, in Congress it's designed that way I like it that way frankly uh, I'm not a big centralized government kind of guy I want bigger decisions to be made for you at the state and local level uh, because it is easier for you to hold those officials accountable. Now, the problem that we've run into in American society is that people don't hold those officials accountable. They don't even sure there exist, right? Most people, you know, they, they, everybody focuses on the presidency. Everything going wrong or right in your life is because of the president. That's an unfortunate, it's an unfortunate change in our culture where we forgot that if we have complaints about our schools, maybe we should get involved in our school board elections. I tell people that all the time because they ask me, what are you going to do about our schools? You know, they're teaching the wrong stuff. They're doing this or whatever the problem is. And I say, Who, who's on your school board? You know, you vote for them. You, you, you've got, you, you elect these people. Mm-hmm. You've got to be involved in this stuff. This really matters. Um, but uh, and so, so getting back to, to decentralized control and local control, basically federalism, you know, how the Constitution was written is extremely important. Yeah, I know I went off on a tangent there. Go for but, it. <laughs> but, it's uh, the internet, man. You can the, go off can, on tangents. We can do whatever we want. Um, so, but what was the original question? Bring us back. Let's bring us back uh, to the... Just kind of asking your what you thought of the experience of, you know, going door to door into the restaurants oh, yeah. and fundraising. Yeah. Um, yeah, what's it like to campaign? Okay, so you get your website. You basically hire a consultant who tells you how to build a website, all right, and how this should look. You've got to set up, you know, a, a donation button on there and, yep. and get that set up. Uh, one of the harder things about running for office as a nobody is you don't you don't have the ability to afford even a lawyer like a campaign finance lawyer to tell you how to how to 
how to get the money in correctly. So you're screwing that up right away. Um, <laughs> and like there's, there's, it's, and that, that becomes pretty difficult. I mean, you're screwing up the little stuff. And um, I'm going to go off on another tangent real quick and talk about campaign, campaign finance for, an, for, for a minute because I, I want as many people to understand this as possible. Everybody thinks that the problem with campaign finance is that there's big money involved. And I'm using quotation marks for those of you listening. Big money, big money. Okay, here's the reality. I can only take $2,800 from a single individual and from a corporate PAC, $5,000. That's a drop in the bucket when it comes to running a campaign. Okay, nobody can buy you off individually. Now think of it this way. Me as an incumbent politician with a million people on social media that I can ask for money from or, or and, and a huge mailing list and big name ID now, it's pretty easy for me at this point now to raise money that way, one donor at a time, mm-hmm. Okay. It's not that hard for me. Uh, it's very hard for you if you're a nobody trying to compete with me. Okay, so what's a so is is the system we have really good with all these limitations, with all these rules and regulations? Because again, there's a lot of rules and regulations too that you have to comply with. Okay, I can afford to have lawyers do that and make sure that we're in compliance. You can't. All right, so this is what it was like for me back in, in 2017. So ask yourself. If we want to reform campaign finance, what's the most fair way to do that? What's, what would allow people, regular people, to actually compete with incumbent politicians? And the answer is, is, is counterintuitive. The answer is actually you have to raise limits. You have to raise limits significantly so that somebody can actually compete with you. All right, that's, that's the dirty little secret about campaign finance. When we're talking about taking big money out of politics, and this is the Democrat talking point, what they really mean is keep incumbents in. That's what they actually mean. And that's a really unfortunate reality. And it's and they're selling a, a, a really false bill of goods there. Okay. Isn't it a concern, though, that you could have undue influence from a large donor? There's that concern. But then you know what? You can be voted out. Because in the end, you, you stand for something. Okay? And if, and, if you, and if you go to office and you no longer stand for that, and, and people voted for you because you stand for something, and then you go off and you change that, well, then they can vote you out. You know, in, in the end, everything you do is highly transparent. Mm-hmm. And uh, so I mean, there, there is that concern. But the, the reality is, too, is that a donor won't support you unless they already agree with you. That, that's the other reality about, say, corporate PACs. Okay, so um, when a corporate PAC approaches me, they're not trying to convince me of anything. It's because my values already align with theirs because I'm, I'm generally a lower taxes, deregulation kind of conservative. That's what they generally want um, because they want to be able to run their business and hire more people and invest in our economy. Okay, these are all good things. Corporations are not evil in any way. The other thing you have to ask yourself is, since on the, specifically on the corporate PAC side, because this, this is always coming up in general political discussions, is, is it really wrong for a group of people to pool their money together and advocate? That's American democracy. That has been American democracy forever. Uh, what is wrong with that? You know, and I would say, well, there's nothing wrong with that. That's that's exactly how it should be. And, and actually, if you if you deny them the freedom to do that, you're seriously infringing on their their their, their ability to engage in democracy and and exercise their freedom of speech. Um, and so 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 that's fundamentally what that and that and that's the basis of Citizens United. That's 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 whole debate. All right, and people need to understand what that really means. It's not corporations using their profits to, to exercise influence. That's illegal. That remains illegal. Um, and so getting that out there, I think, is important. The more we tell people what the truth is about campaign finance and, and how it would help you if you were a nobody like I was mm-hmm. trying to make it. I had to compete with somebody who was able to put six and a half million dollars of their own money into their campaign. 
They have spent me 30 to 1. I'm the exception. I'm not the rule. So the ex- I'm the exception in that I was able to overcome that. And I was able to overcome it because I got a story to tell. I knew why I was running. I was able to articulate that to a lot of different groups. Uh, it's a highly engaged area in, in the Houston area. So meaning a lot of different political groups, they like to have all the candidates come and talk to them and, and they'll ask us all questions and we get to, we get to compete with them one another. You know, so that's, but not all, not all districts are like that. Not all districts offer candidates the opportunity to really come out and engage. You have to do it yourself and that can be harder. Uh, I got some good earned media, you know, I was able to get on Fox news and tell my story. Mm-hmm. Uh, I literally ran across the district a hundred miles, like from down just South of where we are now, all the way winding up to the, to the Northeast part of Houston to, to Lake Houston. So, well, that's just dumb. No, it was great. It was dumb, actually. My my knee <laughs> has not recovered because <laughs> um, I don't like running. Neither do I. Running is dumb. That's ridiculous. Yeah. <laughs> do that? I don't get like on it. a segue, dude. Get a freaking right. But that wouldn't have had the same umph to it, you know. You could have done it in American flag speed. So, yeah. Well, I could have. <laughs> Lots of could haves there. <laughs> I don't think that would have worked as well. But we ran. It got attention, you know. Yeah. I got attention. I was also raising money to to rebuild. Um, uh, a neighborhood that got hurt after Hurricane Harvey. And so we were able to do some of that. And it's um, just little things, right? Creative campaigning. I, I plastered my face everywhere and and uh, and put the yard signs up. I mean, you do all the little things. And, and, and we're, it's, it's about basic leadership too, okay? You got to inspire one person to inspire another person and kind of mm-hmm. make that dream catch fire. And um, and I, what, what, I, what I really ran on too, and, and I would say this to anybody who ever wants to run for office is, you need to know really deep down why you're running because if, if, if you do know why other people will understand why, because that passion will come out and maybe it's an issue that you care about. Maybe, you know, maybe there's a, maybe there's a story you have that you want to tell people and like, this is why you're running and it's compelling and it connects with other people. For me, it was, it was, it was, I was, I'm very passionate about a conservative approach to governance. It's not, it's not even just one issue it's, it's how we govern as a country, and I want to be able to give the conservative movement a future and a better message um, and, and a better way of explaining that approach to governance, that framework that I care about so much. Explain that to people in a mo- more coherent way because I'm not so sure it has been explained correctly over the years. And, um, and, and, and for the primary, at least, you know, that's, that's, that's effective. And, and frankly, I think that's effective uh, even in a general election. You know, when we... I don't, I don't know that we... We talk enough about why we believe what we believe. Like, how did we get to this policy point where I'm talking about, you know, lowering the corporate tax rate, right? So that's because that's that's a policy. But how do you, how do you get there? You know, um, and it's downstream of culture. So you got to start with cultural principles that lead to our constitutional principles that lead to this idea that we think it's a better idea to have lower corporate tax rates. Because I, I can make an economic argument for why that's a good idea. But what about the simple idea that people should be able to keep more of their money? Like this is a cultural value. Like, should, what, why does government exist in the first place? Does it exist to tax corporations and individuals as much as possible? And why would it exist to do that? Well, to give to give benevolent academics in Washington who are bureaucrats all the power and money they need to implement the programs that they think are really great. And this gets back to another idea. Why should they even be doing that? Why can a group of experts exercise complete centralized control and figure out everybody's problems for them? Okay, this is, to me, that's an inherently flawed philosophy. This is why I prefer decentralized control, letting you keep more of your money, letting you do what you want with your time, letting, letting you enjoy the benefits of your success instead of punishing that success. So I'm getting back to very 
foundational arguments for how we got to this point where we wanted to lower the corporate tax rate by you know, 15 percentage points, right? You got to explain to people why and, and maybe think through why. Yeah. You know, we were talking about this before, I think. Yeah, um, the power of that question. It's my right. favorite one. Yeah. And like how, how even in tactics in the SEAL teams, you know, we would, we would do. Literally be at a podium, sometimes often literally hammering the podium. This is what we do. Mm-hmm. And then somebody says, why? And you say, shut up. <laughs> this is what we cause. It's written down somewhere. <laughs> right. How right. many people, you know, I, so I look at myself um, and my understanding of politics, and I can go back even farther, the campaign finance reform. I know almost nothing about it. <clears throat> and uh, this is a, a negative choice that I think I inherently make is that I choose not to pay attention to it because I cannot separate the wheat from the chaff. I have uh, access to the same, you know, social media avenues that people do, the same news media outlets, in, and I, I am at a point where I cannot determine, quite frankly, what in the fuck is going on. <laughs> it's especially with something as nuanced as campaign finance, for instance, which is why, which I, I do try to talk about it more because yeah. it's it's something that especially young people, you know, are concerned about. They ask about a lot, and I and I love being able to explain it, you know, in a way that that I think makes sense and, and in a way they haven't really heard before. Cause what they hear are the talking points, you know, get the big money out and oh, that sounds good. I'm not in favor of big money and corporations controlling our politicians and been told that a million times in talking points. It's gotta be true. It's gotta be based on some truth, right? Well, no, why? <laughs> you know, let's go, let's go back to why let's actually ask the question. And, um, it, it, it is unfortunate that, that there isn't, there isn't, a news media that that simply breaks these issues out in a coherent and very fair way or non-editorialized way right like right. when uh, my uh, my dad talks about it the difference in the news when he was growing up versus the news now where one was a non-editorialized reporting of what happened where you were given the 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 space and distance to make up your own mind versus turning on a news outlet now where you're told what the issue is and then also right on top of that what you should think yeah, exactly. It's um, we, we we've we've conflated you know a, a opinion journalism with with actually journal with actual journalism. And is there a route out of that given the platforms that exist today? In your opinion, um, because like I said, so what I, I and the reason I ask that is because of the position I find myself in, the more I see people yelling at each other, the least I'm least less I'm interested in what they're talking about. Yeah. You know, the more that it's thrown in my face, the more likely that I am to detach from it a little bit. So what I end up happening or what ends up happening for me is I pay less attention, which therefore, and you know this as well as anybody, if you want to make moves, you do it in the seams where people aren't paying attention. So yep. it's, I, it, I view it, it's something that I would like to change about myself, but to be honest with you, I don't even know where to begin. Like, <laughs> Yeah. And I mean, I could give you news outlets that I think are good, you know, that but the, the speak to my own biases. I, I understand that. Yeah. I think national. No, I mean, I a, mean, even beyond, like, yeah. just I'm mean, just talking in general. The amount of the volume of information that is thrown at people and the inability to determine right. what to fact from fiction or a blend of the two, semi-factual but a little bit fiction, yeah, semi-fiction but a little bit factual. It's just, I don't know. You and, and what what people find themselves having to do is to if you if you really are open-minded and you really do want to get to the truth of an issue you, you've got to seek out the the more rep, reputable sources on either side like facebook facebook yeah facebook is perfect yeah just <laughs> look at no just look at my twitter comments and you, it'll it's, it's the best that'll be the best 
a source of information you can find. Um, but you know, on the conservative side, there's there's plenty of think tanks that would that would offer you here's the data, like here here's the argument too. So AEI, American Enterprise Institute, Heritage Foundation, National Review Magazine, these are these are intellectual thought leaders who are writing this stuff. This is this is not this is not commentary. Um, well, it is. I mean, it, there's opinions through, throughout, and these are these are conservative, just to, just to be clear. But they're. I was going to say, who funds those organizations? Yeah, well, it's conservatives. I mean, this yep. is this is this is the conservative thought leaders, is what I'm saying. And on on, on the left, like you know, you, you you look for what you need from the left. Maybe it's Brookings Institute or something. Um, so, or, and the same thing. They're funded by the yeah, left yeah, as well too. Is, so yeah. is, these are these are left wing. These are left wing think tanks. Um, or, or or you know, there's left wing columnists too that will at least try to make an argument. And so that your your best option then is to look at both and see which one is convincing, and um, and one of the reasons I'm a conservative is because that every time I ever looked at both, the right is more convincing, because we delve a few more layers deep into it, um, you know, and that's just that's just that's just how I end up on these things. So, but that's what you have to do. That it's it's hard to imagine where to go to find all of that in one place that yep. really fairly balances out the two because it's really not the news i mean and the news is reporting on current events too so it's well plus i hate seeing i don't like turning the tv on and seeing yeah. your face so yeah. i just turn it off immediately. you say that but you do like it <laughs> you say that <laughs> every time i I'd like i'll turn the tv i'm like damn it dan you're on tv again <laughs> which leads me to my next question what's the what's a week in the life of a freshman congressman look like i mean we're in we're in houston right now but yeah. most of the time when i see you on the news uh you're not in houston yeah well, yeah, most of my interviews are while I'm in D.C. Um, although we do we do a fair amount of interviews here too. So this week I'll, I'll head back to D.C. tomorrow. We'll be back in session. We'll have votes at six thirty. Um, it'll be a, a, a typical day. You know, it'd be easier. I could just look at my schedule. I'm not going to tell you exactly what's on my schedule, but you know, this is this is the best way to just to tell us the this. address and room number yeah. of each event. Well. Well, my everybody can find me in in DC. You know, you'd be you'd be amazed how easy it is for anybody to access our offices in in Washington DC. It is the people's house after all. Yeah. So, you know, we've got I've got speaking events. We've got uh we'll have we'll have uh we'll have meetings with our with with our conference, meaning the Republican Party will have its meetings. We'll talk about legislation coming up for the for the week. Um a lot of the things you do throughout the day are are, are meeting with different groups who have issues. And they usually have to have some connection to the district for, for, for to get a meeting. But, mm-hmm. you know, well, if you have an issue and, and, and you want to talk about it, and, you, and especially if you represent a group and, an, and some kind of interest that maybe we're not aware of, then, you know, we want to hear about it. And so that, that, that takes up a lot of the time of what we do. Um, you know, you mix in some fundraising in there, of course. You're always doing that. But it's... Um, a lot of my time is speaking events, mm. going to different groups, talking to them, giving them updates. Okay, this is what we've been voting on the last few months because, I mean, not everybody follows what HR1 and HR8 are, right? Like it's, you know, they, they might know the issues generally speaking, but I go there to, to, to tell them what we voted on it, explain the votes that I, that I took uh, if they have questions on that and, and, ex- and, and tell them what we might see on the horizon. So it's a lot of engagement while we're back here in home. Uh, and even when in, in D.C., because there's multiple ways to engage, of course. We're doing a podcast right now yep. that engages lots of people. Uh, you know, obviously, I'm, I'm, I'm pretty prolific on, on social media because I want to give people a little bit of insight into what I'm doing all the time and then be able to explain things um, in, a, in a coherent way. 
right? It doesn't have to be, it doesn't always have to be an official statement, right? People want to hear you just talk to them. And this is, this is a change in politics, I think, over the last few years. People want to, people want to see that. What I'll do sometimes, I'll just pull up a camera and be like, we just got out of this vote. This is what it means. Yeah, I've let, seen let, you do let, that. Let me break Many this times. down. Um, well, it allows you to explain it on your terms. I think that's one th- yeah. cool thing about the ability to broadcast on whatever medium it might be. Like, I like podcasts because, dude, you can go down as many tangents as you want to. It, mm-hmm. it, if the SIM card runs out, I guess we could go to Target and get another one. But it's true. it allows you to discuss it in the breadth and depth that you want to, as opposed yeah. to, you know, turn, you know, flipping to whatever, fill in the blank, Fox News, USA Today, whatever it might yeah, be. Yeah, you got two minutes. And get your point out. Oh, man, I've done a couple fundraising ones just for when I was raising money for the SEAL Foundation. They're like, okay, this point seems incredibly nuanced and complex. You have six seconds. Yeah. And I spent three of those going, uh. Yeah, what? (laughs) No, it takes some practice, you know, because you (laughs) ought to get those points out right away. But um, that's why this gets back to, we touched on this a little bit before, the the new age of, of getting information out there, whether it's a podcast or whether, oh, well, oh, this is this is what I wanted to hit on when you were talking about how do people digest news anymore? You know, it's hard to get that nuance. And I think that's why you're seeing such a rise in popularity in, in podcasts, a Exploding. rise in popularity of, of YouTube videos. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, this people, people have the attention span and they do want to hear a little bit more of a thoughtful discussion than just that two minute news clip that, you know, because you only had two minutes if you're even lucky enough to get that. But why not talk about an issue for 10 minutes? Like, well, why not go on some tangents? I mean, people are driving in the car. They have time to listen to it. Yeah. That's the beauty of podcasts. So there's, there's a hunger for that long-form discussion and, and diving into an issue and really going back and forth on it. Well, I think, I mean, and totally, I mean, this is pure conjecture, but I think people, at least the ones I know, I think they inherently, given the two-minute blurb of everything, I think it's a little bit grating, and yeah. it, it forces them to seek that longer medium right. whatever it may be and they may not even recognize that it took me a while to realize that i just don't like that yeah. here's 15 seconds what happens here's what you should think i'm like shut up like that's yeah. for one it's it's well, not enough information for me because i like you i think i love going when i do try to figure things out i go right back to the data and i'd rather just look at the raw data mm-hmm. and i'll figure out the anomalies and the outliers on my own but i'd rather just look at it and take the time to understand yeah. the issue and the arguments behind that or the arguments on how to interpret that data too, well, given whatever we're, we're talking about. And you're naturally curious. And this is, this is my big piece of advice to especially younger people is, is it's okay not to know. And it's, it's okay to think there might be more to this story and I'm going to wait till there's wait till I find out more about this particular issue. Mm-hmm. Did so-and-so really say that, you know, always ask yourself that. It's, do you really think this story happened? And I've been, the, I mean, I've, I've already But you should comment first and then think. Yeah, right? yeah, yeah. Com- <laughs> comment first, throw some fire bombs, and then, uh, <laughs> and then, and then look into back. it. Yeah, I mean, well, but this is the problem. So people are immediately, yeah. they immediately react, and they react viciously. Well, that's and the then, pros and, and cons to this instantaneous medium. Right, but, the, but then they're emotionally invested in that reaction because you did it. You don't want to walk it back because you did it, and... This is really dangerous because it's it's and this is just natural human natural human nature. It's kind of a ham-handed way of saying it, but it's human nature to once you've invested in that decision that you yourself made or that opinion that you yourself created, uh, it's hard to walk it back. All right, it really is. Even if you do find out information that would um, that would uh, that would counter what you thought. <laughs> so, and this this is unfortunate. So I always say like, don't say it unless you're sure. 
You know, I mean, be curious, yeah. be curious. Like don't, don't, don't fall into to confirmation bias. It's okay not to know, right? It's like, there's a lot of things you don't know. And that's, uh, we, we've gotten away from that as a society. I think we're, we, 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 we have very strong opinions without a lot of, without, without always having a lot of knowledge behind that opinion. That's just dangerous. It's okay just to not have an opinion. Yeah, I think it's okay to sit there and take your time. Before I forget, I think it's interesting. You have the same pop socket on your phone that my 10-year-old daughter has. No way. No, but she has a pop socket. And the fact that you're a congressman and you have one, I think you should never um, never use that again. Wow. It's kind of judgy. It's super judgy. Yeah. Did you go to law school? I didn't. Oh. <laughs> so you're not a judge. I'm not a judge. Okay. But I you're just wondering. I was just making sure. I, you, <laughs> just, correct. You're, just, a, you're a congressman <laughs> and you shouldn't use a pop socket because that's just what my kids but, do. But, but it's easy to hold it that way. I, I, can, I, I don't mean, even know look, if I can talk to you anymore. Now I, now I can. It stands up by itself. Stop it. Stop it, there's, it. A, there's a... Whatever. <laughs> so what's working in the government and what's broke? Three months in, what's your initial assessment? Um, wow. What works? <laughs> um, again, the federal government in many ways works the way it was supposed to in terms of, of inability to compromise and inability to get things done quickly. That's how it was designed. We didn't like the idea of, of things happening quickly with, with all the power of the federal government behind it. That being said, the federal government still does too much. So what does it do really well? Well, it spends too much money really well. So that's pretty bad. We have $22 trillion in debt, and we're not talking. We never even debate the main drivers of, the, of that debt, which is 70% of our spending. So 70% of our spending, we don't even vote on every year. We fight about discretionary spending. Uh, so that's Department of Defense. That's, that's the most of what discretionary spending is. But it's also every other federal agency, right? It, it's, it's, it's actually what you most understand government to be, is discretionary spending. But it's actually only about 30% of our spending. Mandatory spending is Social Security, Medicare, Medicaid, interest on the debt, all of these things. 70%, we don't vote on it. All right, that happens because it's mandatory. It's going to be spent no matter what because these are entitlement programs. That is driving our debt in a, in a really bad direction. And, and as a percentage of our spending, it will continue to increase. As a percentage of our GDP, that will continue to increase. While as a percentage of GDP, discretionary spending will continue to decrease. While our taxation, actually, meaning federal income, the income that the government is getting, the government revenue, stays about the same, even with the tax cuts. So there's this big debate in Congress between Democrats and Republicans over why we have a debt and whether we're spending too much or taxing too little. All right. Again, I'll never believe that we're taxing too little because I think, and this goes back to my philosophy of why does government exist in the first place? It is not to tax you to the maximum amount possible. Mm. It is to protect your inalienable rights, give you the infrastructure to, to, to pursue your happiness, and that's it. Protect inalienable rights, not create new rights. We don't just get to decide that things we want become rights. Right? That's not how this works. Um, and... And just mathematically, it's falsehood to say that the tax cuts caused the, the debt. I mean, we, we, have, we have record amounts of revenue last year and this year. And it continues to increase. We're going to increase revenue by about five percentage points a year over the next 10 years. We don't have a taxation problem. All right. Um, and, 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 you know, people need to understand that as well. So what is government doing wrong? We're spending too much money and it's killing our generation because we're the ones who got to pay for this. So is there any route to actually pay for it? Well... We just need to be on a, a, on a fiscal trajectory that is sustainable. Um, you don't actually have to pay off your debt. It just needs to be sustainable, meaning it doesn't grow as a percentage of GDP uh, the way it is growing now. You know, stabilizing it as a percentage of GDP would be 
well, it would be stabilizing. It would be sustainable. You'd st you're still always going to have a debt, and that debt will always still be growing. But, but as far as our credit is concerned and as far as our ability to sustain that, um, we can as long as the growth of our economy is greater than the deficits that we incur every year. So it's not actually as draconian as, as you think it is. Now, I would still argue that we should have zero deficits every year. Um, and that would actually cause the deficit, the debt as a percentage of GDP to go down. All right. We're going to get a little complicated there. But the, 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 but the point is, is it's possible. And uh, w with certain reforms, with raising the retirement age, without promising too much, right? But the problem is, the easiest thing in the world for a politician to do to get elected is to promise more stuff. Yeah, I'll promise you more stuff, and I'm going to get that done. And when you get that done, well, you got to promise more stuff on top of that. And that's what's happened over decades and decades and decades. And as a conservative, we're always the ones raising our hand and saying, ah, I don't think we should spend that much money on this. And they'll say, and let's say this is a bill you know, that's, that helps all the children. You know? And what they'll say is, well, hey, we, we can't spend all that money on, even though it's a good thing to spend some money on, we can't spend the amount you're saying it on because who's going to pay for it? And they'll say, well, you're against the children. I mean, and this is, this is the game that gets played in politics. And so you, you bully each other into spending more and more and more. And when you don't have a balanced budget amendment at the federal level, the way you do at the state level, and a lot of states do, um, there's no need for compromise. And, and what, what happens instead is you're able to bully each other into spending more and more and more and accuse each other of not being for the nice things. This is really problematic. It actually causes more division than it would if you had a balanced budget and you had to make compromises because you couldn't accuse each other of, of not having a big heart. When you attach higher dollar signs to a bigger heart, you're, really, you're, really a, you're making a really deceitful moral argument against somebody. You're questioning their character because they have a legitimate concern about how much we're spending. This is why things are so divisive in, in my opinion. It's one of many reasons, but it's, it's one of them. You know, this is actually, it's, it's, it's counterintuitive, but it actually shows that a balanced budget amendment where we're forced to have a balanced budget, I think would actually create more compromise and less divisiveness because you can no longer make those moral arguments against each Give other. Give you less room to maneuver. Right, right. Like we have to make these decisions. Right now it's, well, the reality is you don't have to make the decisions. And, and both sides know that. Unfortunately, yeah, because like Republicans at least say we don't want to spend more, but we, we're not very good at getting it done. We, we would have to, frankly, have way more control over the government. I mean, 60 votes in the Senate, control the House, control the presidency, and have real fiscal conservatives in there. And then I think we could get something done. But, but you also have to convince the American people that, that, that we shouldn't let government buy you off, right? Because this is what it's really fundamentally comes down to. Do you want to let government buy you off or not? Are you going to be a voter that, that is persuaded by, by a politician who says, we're going to promise you more stuff. And I would urge people, don't be persuaded by that because it's an impossible promise. Okay, let me give you an example. This idea of taxing the 1% to pay for all the great programs, right? Free this, free that, free this. It's impossible mathematically, all right? And we should, all we have to do is compare ourselves to some other countries that do promise a lot of these things. The reality is that those countries tax their middle class far higher than we do. They have a far more regressive tax system, and this is just according to the OECD data, all right? They almost have a flat tax. I'm talking about uh, the, uh, the countries like Denmark and Finland and Sweden in, in particular, because we always like to compare ourselves with them. They have a practically flat tax system, a coefficient of about one, which is practically a flat system, meaning... By flat tax system, I mean, let's say everybody's taxed at you know, 10%. That would be a flat tax system. We have a very progressive tax system in America where the poor are practically not taxed at all. In fact, it's almost negative. They get, when, when, you, when, you, when you 
incorporate transfers, wealth transfers, meaning welfare, uh, they end up not only not paying taxes, but getting an additional income on top of that. Whereas the rich pay far more. Um, you know, the top 1%, I think, pays uh, between 30 and 40% of all federal revenue. So I don't know what fair share means to a lot of people, but I, that's not technically fair. Okay. Now, maybe it's fine with us, but it's not fair by any sense of the imagination. So if you want to spend $32 trillion on Medicare for all, you do have to significantly raise taxes on the middle and lower classes. That's just a mathematical fact. Uh, that's what Denmark does. So an example, if you make $70,000 in Denmark, you're already paying the top tax rate. Hmm. Whereas in America, you're paying the top tax rate at over you know, almost like almost $500,000. So it's quite different. You know, and people need to understand that. So if you want to have an honest debate and argument about we want to give you this and we want to tax you this to pay for it. Fine, have that debate. At least you're being honest. But to say that we can tax the 1% is just a lie. It's a mathematical lie. Or they are not lying and they're just planning on borrowing more, which I would argue is still a tax. It's just a tax on the younger generation. So, Yeah, there's a lot going on there, man. <laughs> there's, a <laughs> there's a lot. I mean, that's the thing. There's a lot to unpack. And I don't know, depending on the shotgun blast of information that's coming at your face from the source that it's coming from, most people are just going to put their hands up and shy away. And then people who want to maneuver will maneuver in that scene when nobody's paying yeah. attention. I think that's the big danger of it. It is. And, you know, your original question was what works and what doesn't. And I want to do a 10-minute explanation of the debt and how to pay for that. But that, that's one of my biggest issues because it's, um, it's, it's, it's a product of my age, you know, and, and people my age are going to have to pay this down. These, these programs, these entitlement programs go insolvent. Uh, Social Security goes insolvent by 2035. Medicare goes insolvent in 2026. This is right around the corner. Uh, that was actually going to describe it in just those terms. Yeah. I mean, that's, you know, that, that should scare us. And, and the question is, do we want to double our own tax rates to pay for that stuff? All, these, all these, these, these programs that have proven themselves to be unsustainable? Do we really want to increase our taxes to pay for that? Or should we make some adult decisions and, and rein these in. We don't even have to cut benefits greatly at this point, right? We can raise the retirement age. We can means test them. There's a lot of creative ways to do this stuff. Um, what does work in Washington? Maybe I could give you some positive answer there. <laughs> it was, um, you know. Well, from an outside perspective, from somebody who has, I mean, openly said that I, I, I should follow the government more and I don't because of the fact that I can't separate truth from fiction, it seems that there are more things that are broken than are that are working. So it doesn't surprise me, even from my non-educated perspective, that you know you would struggle more to find the things that a shining example of something yeah. that cuts down the middle of the aisle and both parties can agree on. Yeah, I mean, national security issues are generally things we both agree on. Um, there's those those tend to work okay, I think. Um, not a whole lot of division on on where we what direction we should be going on any given national security issue, whether we should be funding our military properly, uh, funding the intelligence community properly. So th there's generally a lot more bipartisanship on, on, on those issues. And no, now, is it working perfectly? No, I think we need to invest more in certain technologies to keep our country safe, compete with China, compete with you know, future threats from, from Russia, Iran, and these things as, as our military moves from a counterterrorism operation to a more great power competition. And uh, that, you know, that's something we have to be concerned about. But but I, but I think we're getting there. So I, uh, I don't, I don't, I don't know that we need to be super upset about it. Um, the listen, the reality is, is that we don't agree on what's wrong with Washington and then how to fix it, which is also, in a sense, how Washington is supposed to work. It yeah. is, it is a big debate. It is a we we live in a republic where we debate these big ideas, 
And um, I, I'd say I'd say as long as we're debating that in a way that that doesn't that doesn't just degrade into into um, character attacks, which is generally what happens, right? Uh, then we'd be doing it just fine because as long as you're debating ideas, even viciously, that's okay. That's, that's what we're supposed to be doing. Um, it's 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 when those it's it's when those uh, debate tactics become highly dishonest is when I get a little frustrated, and I've seen that happen just over the last couple of weeks. You know, <laughs> yeah, you've been uh, how how's it been getting just kind of rocketed into the social media stratosphere, if you will, because mm-hmm. from our old job. Uh, yeah. You know, social media following is not necessarily inherently part of the uh, job right. description. <laughs> right. It is It is now, though, um, for sure, especially this new generation of politicians. You know, my freshman class, obviously, it's like me and, uh, and a few of our Democrat colleagues, and we get all the attention. And so I find myself trying to walk this line between just ignoring as much as what they say as possible um, and, and just really just commenting on when I really feel the need to. And uh, it has consequences. You know, you you are in the fight, like, and 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 people people pick up what I say, uh, and I don't mind that. It means it, I I don't mind being out there. I know what I believe, and I know why I believe it. So I don't mind being a spokesperson for it. And uh, I'm a real, I'm not afraid to step into that. But you know, we we should always be cautious about what we step into and why. Um, and and I think I've walked that line just just fine. You know, so the, those. You find it uh, bizarre being a public figure now, coming from a world where yeah. you're more, it's more supposedly supposed to be cloaked yeah. in anonymity. Whether or not that always holds true is yeah, <laughs> it's, it's a whole different conversation. Yeah, um, it is strange, but but it but it happened gradually. I mean, when you when you decide you want to run for office, your entire your your, your entire goal is to get more famous because yeah, your life's going to change by if, that decision alone. Right. If you don't get name ID, then you can't win. So your entire job at that point running for office is to get people to know you and to like you uh so it happened gradually obviously it took off wildly after the saturday night live thing which by the way how did they contact you uh email <laughs> i think i think was uh the subject line are bad are, sorry <laughs> <laughs> it was just it was yeah it was um yeah, they contacted. At first, it was just a, a producer who contacted us and apologized, and then Lauren Michael got a hold of me, and I can't remember if it was a phone conversation or an email, but um, you know, he he put out the idea of of me coming out there and 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 doing the show with them, and which was the best response ever. Yeah, it was fun. I mean, yeah. it was it was a perfect. It was it was it was a really a perfect situation where I I, I could imagine a world where they didn't really mean it the way it came out. And that's important. You know, give people that space. Yeah. Um, and I don't always give people that space because sometimes I think it's obvious just based on the circumstances that they meant what they said. And, uh, and if they don't apologize, then why give them the graciousness of, an, of accepting an apology? See, Saturday Night Live actually apologized. And so I want to contrast this real quick with what happened a few weeks ago with Ilhan Omar. Right? And she, says some, she, she describes 9-11 as some people did something. Some people claim that was taken out of context. Of course it wasn't. Of course it wasn't. Yeah, I went back and I actually found the entire video on that just because I wanted to see the context for myself. It was not out of context at all. Now, she was making a broader point, which I don't have a problem with. Her point was that you know Muslim civil liberties should be protected, that CARE has, has, has a role in that. Of course, she apparently doesn't know when CARE was founded. which She is flubbed a, the date a bit. Strange. Um, so, But that's, that's not the point. Nobody had a problem with her broader point. You still describe something in a dismissive way, and I said that was unbelievable. The reaction that took place after that was um, was astonishing even to me. And what I've noticed is, is um, frankly, when 
when, 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 you're, when you're exposing some truth about people uh, and they don't like it, they're going to come after you pretty hard. And they did. Uh, now, in the end, I, 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 I have no problem with what I said or did. I think we did the right thing. Um, I can but, always tell, I uh, look at your tweets. I'm just, I can, I can gauge how close they are to the hot button by just the number of comments back to you and the number of retweets. Yeah. And so I'll look at that first. And I'm like, oh, what do you say? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. yeah that, that, that's how you, that's on, on Twitter specifically. That's, that is how you measure it. Yeah. Um, and there was this argument that, well, why don't you take your advice from Saturday Night Live, the, the advice you gave? And I'm like, okay, let's, let's, let's break that down. The advice I gave after Saturday Night Live was attack ideas, but don't attack people's character. And so here's what actually happened when I, when I, when I commented on Omar's remarks. I, what I attacked was what she said. Simple as that. What you said is wrong. It was unbelievable. You shouldn't, you shouldn't talk about 9-11 that way. You know, and you could you could easily diffuse it. You could she could have said, "I didn't mean it that way." I, I, you know, I was talking off the cuff. You know, the fair enough. Like, let's give people the space to say that. But of course, they don't say that. What she says is, "Well, she doubles down, and then she accuses me of inciting violence against her." Like, wow, that was that went about ten different steps <laughs> forward. So, you know, it, it's and, and and what do they do? That well, they attack my character. Then they start saying that I'm not a supporting of a supportive of 9/11 victims. They start making up all these stories. Uh, it was it was pretty interesting to watch that narrative play out. And so to say that I wasn't keeping that same advice is is it's pretty illogical, frankly. Um, and and again, the advice was: if people are willing to 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 apologize, you know, give them that that graciousness. Like, don't always take up aggrieved victim status, even though our society apparently values that more than it should, or rewards it more yeah, than it rewards should. Rewards it is yeah, maybe that's that's the better word, but um, but in the end, what's the difference? And, uh, and, and that's a problem. Like when you're always seeking out that ability to be, to be the agreed victim, again, this is what Representative Omar did, right? Was she, was she said, well, now I'm just under attack because of what you said. And we're like, no, it's because of what you said. What you said, not, what, not us pointing it out. What you said. Take some responsibility for that. And, um, and it's really problematic that we're in this world right now where people don't take responsibility for that, where they rely on their identity to make their argument which is a really shallow way of making an argument. You can't talk to me because I'm this identity, because I'm of this gender or this skin color or this religion. Really? I, I, you, you can't make a point against me because of that? That's a really cheap way to make an argument, and that's what we're seeing now. How and much do you think that detracts from your ability to do your job? On both sides of the aisle, like, you know, talking about oh, enormously. Uh, <laughs> well, I mean, just the social media aspect alone. It, yeah. I mean, I, there's not a day that goes by. And I, so I opened the Fox News app, uh, every day for the last 30 days to do a test. And every day for the last 30 days on the first four leading articles is a picture of AOC. Mm-hmm. Every single day, regardless of, you know what I mean? And so it draws attention, which draws people to following or listening to her social media yep. uh, profile, the way she talks. And I mean, uh, right, wrong, or different. I'm not making a value judgment on it. But it seems like that churn is consuming so much of the bandwidth that I can't imagine that helping anybody actually do the job with which they were elected to do. Yes and no. Um, part of the job you're elected to do is to represent in a, in a public way. And so not all representatives see it that way. Mm. Um, everybody goes, every member goes up there with a, some, uh, I guess, a, maybe a different perspective on what they're supposed to do up there. 
Now, if you're in the majority, your goal should be to legislate. All right. And legislated bills that will make it through the Senate and make it through the executive. Well, we're in the minority right now. Uh, they have no interest in working with us on, on major legislation. That's, that's just been true so far. Maybe that'll change later on. You know, we keep talking about an infrastructure bill, for instance. But, but that should be your goal. Um, some people go up there to, to, make, you know, to, to fight the good fight, right? To, to constantly hit back on what the other side is saying. Um, some people go up there because they have one issue that they care about, you know, and, and I know people like that. They, they only ran for Congress because of one issue. Mm-hmm. Uh, I, I ran on really a couple of different issues that I definitely still work on a lot, both in messaging, both publicly and behind the scenes. And that's that's flooding issues here in Houston and that's border security. So I mean, I'm on Homeland Security Committee and the, and the Homeland deals with both of these pretty uh, in, in a pretty deep way. So uh, so does it really detract in a, in a way, yes, but but not as much as you'd think. I mean, I guess it just it, seems like a distraction. It maybe can not a, be. a detraction, but yeah. a distraction. I mean, it can be, but that depends on your personality. You know, the the, the solution to that is don't let it distract you, because uh, because the reality is, I mean, if you follow my social media, we put out one thing a day. It's about one thing a day. So this isn't a huge. This mm-hmm. is, certainly isn't a big part of my day that we that we focus on on social media, but it is an important part, uh, and. And the thing is, is that it gets blown up because everybody's talking about it. And so it gets, it gives you the, it gives normal people the impression that all these members are doing is on social media. Now, if you look That's at That's actually AOS, a good point because a lot of that can get accelerated and right. elevated without them actually participating beyond the initial interaction. A hundred percent. Now, AOC is a little different. She's literally always on Twitter. So, and you can see that from her Twitter feed. I mean, it's so that, so you can make a different argument about her. And she's you guys also, seem like besties, by the way. I would, I would, you know, we could, we could be, <laughs> I, it, it seems like, honestly, it seems from a totally outside and again, uneducated perspective that you two are getting pitted against each other, whether that's intentional or, uh, that's we, just the way that it is. That certainly seems what yeah, it looks like. And the reality is we both exercise a little bit of discipline and how we go after each other because it's, it is kind of a war of attrition. And so, you know. Like on the Omar thing, for some reason, she felt the need to defend. Well, she always defends Omar. And so, okay, fair enough. Now, she made up lies about me in order to do so. But so I, I didn't find that to be very. Uh, she uh, say you were handsome or what was. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> yes, I got one in. <laughs> nice. Um, you know, so I didn't, I wasn't a fan of that. But um, but for the most part, I, I and I don't even respond, right? Like I did. Yeah. Never well, there's no there's no it. there's no upswing, positive no, upswing. No, to there's not. To some it, of that. A lot of my comments on AOC are generally because people ask me, um, or I might or I might hammer the Green New Deal or, or something. But but that, again, that now we're just attacking policies, and I which I think is not only fair game, but it's your job. Like you're supposed to, you're supposed to go after people's policies. Well, that's what they're their, presenting is the solution, right? Yeah, yeah, and their ideas and everything they say. All right, then again, what we have to avoid and what we don't do a good job avoiding, um, by we, I mean just America doesn't do a good job avoiding, is the tendency to attack their character or their personality or something about them as a person, ad hominem attacks, as opposed to what they're saying. You know, And again, if you want proof of that, just look at my Twitter feed. It's all one-eyed this, one-eyed that. You know, nobody, actually, nobody actually comments on what I said. Yeah. Right? They, just, they, just, they just name call. You so, know what's funny is I will actually I can't wake make my way through the thousands of comments, yeah. but I can say anecdotally when I do click on them, 
it does degrade to one eye this within, yeah honestly i would say within five to seven comments yeah that's what it <laughs> what it eventually turns it's and then, yeah. and then i'm like i'm out i, and, I can't do and it and the only reason i even look at them is because we're trying to build a list of mean tweets that we can read out because it's funny, but they're not even funny. That's the thing. I, know, saw, just, <laughs> I saw a couple good zingers in there. I'll really? highlight okay, it. Well, <laughs> if you see them, because I don't, I don't like to look at them. You know, it's, you'll drive yourself crazy. You're wasting looking, your time. Looking yeah. through, and you'll be so tempted to respond, and you're not. You know, you shouldn't. But um, that would be a good feature for Twitter to have. I am about to start reading comments. Disable. Yeah. Uh, responses for the next 30 minutes. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Right. So you that's can look at idea. it and regardless, like the harder you hit it, it adds another five minutes yep. to your disable. <laughs> oh, that's good. <laughs> it keeps adding it. Yeah. yeah. And funny. eventually you're shut out for like 24 and you come back. Yeah. Like, yeah. Oh, <sighs> okay, fine. Moving it would on. Save, it would save so many people's reputations. It would have saved many. <laughs> it would have saved a lot. Yeah. Uh, you know, another one that's in the uh, headlines all the time too is uh, immigration and border stuff. And you're saying you were on the border security, which panel you want uh homeland security committee and the subcommittees i'm on are, are oversight as well as um, disaster preparedness so what are your thoughts on what's going on at the border well my thoughts i living make, in a border yeah. state actually i yeah. do too but we have i don't think the issues yeah well um it's a crisis it's it's very clearly a crisis we had uh 400 people illegally illegals coming over and apprehended last year and we're we've already surpassed that this year so who knows what we'll even get to at this point. And, you know, there's there's certain loopholes in our system that incentivize this. And what they incentivize is for these adults from Central America to bring children with them. And th this is this is a new problem. It's a new crisis. It's been building over a couple of years, but it's it's really peaked at this point. And we're completely overwhelmed uh, as far as our Border Patrol is concerned. They have no place to house these people. We're just catching them and releasing them. Because everybody knows that they can jump across, claim asylum, even though they have no real valid claim to an asylum, um, and then that they'll be told to show up for a court date later on. All right. When you say released, so they just released into literally, a city? Literally released. Yeah. Any, uh, yeah. Random cities. Um, so all over the United States. And it's, it's not clear whether they're really showing back up for their, for their hearings. Uh, especially if they know ahead of time that they don't really have any valid claim to asylum. Because most of these people are economic migrants. They just, you know, I'm not saying they're bad people. The wrong arguments to use are the ones that have been used for the last couple of years is that we can't let the drugs and the crime and all that. It's not effective. All right. Here's what's effective. We had 100,000 people in March. That's too many people. And it's not fair. It's not fair or moral or just to have them cut in front of legal immigrants. You know, what about legal immigrants? What about people who actually have an asylum claim, who are fleeing persecution of some sorts? That's what our process is for. So, you know, we need, we certainly need walls to, to fend this off. Because, I mean, where we do have walls, there's less crossings. It's really as simple as that. I always think it's laughable when um, the talking points from the left were always, you know, you're a SEAL. You should know that walls don't matter. And I'm like, what? No, they actually do. <laughs> Quite a bit, actually. Uh, we, they we work, plan, but they're we, not impenetrable. We, they're not impenetrable, but they're yep. certainly a deterrent. Yep. And, yeah, you know, we can get over them with our special training and our equipment and all that, but if you're I talking... I would say it's more the latter, but... <laughs> it's, it's, <laughs> but it's, you know, it's it's not easy. And the, and the fact and the, this, the, the reality is, is that where they exist, you just don't see the crossings. Because, I mean, regular people show up to them and they're like, okay, well, I can't can't get over this i mean that's that's it's, it really is as simple as that it's not impossible but it's certainly a deterrent and again security is about mitigating risk okay it's about mitigating movement and the point is to prevent somebody from coming from point a to point b okay so walls are a part of that they're not the only part of it a major thing we have to do is reform the way we we accept asylum 
seekers at all. And, you know, we should, have, we should have a question out there. Should you really be allowed to claim asylum if you come in between ports of entry? You know, because you're not actually fleeing some kind of persecution. That's not actually happening. You're not fleeing Mexico. You're not running away from yeah, somebody chasing you. Yeah, there's not like the, you. Uh, the dust trail right behind the Yeah, vehicle. I mean, that's just not what's happening. So there's really no good reason why you wouldn't go to a point of entry. Democrats say, well, well, there's too long of a line there. Yes, there is. It's true. Okay, because we do live in a country where we have to have a process and we can't possibly take in 100,000 people at a time. And all these people who are claiming asylum don't necessarily have a valid claim. And this is just proven in the data. I mean, between 80 and 90 percent, it turns out they didn't have a valid claim and they should be deported. We need to be able to adjudicate those claims right away. Don't catch and release them. Hold them. Adjudicate them as far as quickly as possible. If we want to make sure that line goes through quicker, then let's try and add more resources there. Let's put more immigration judges. Let's put more detention facilities. Let's get this done. I'm willing to invest that money if that's what, if that's what we need to do. And, and it, shouldn't also, it should also be acceptable to ask them to wait in Mexico. Again, we have to deter that. We have to remove these incentives because right now they know, how to, they, know how to, they know how to take advantage of our loopholes. That's why you're seeing hundreds of thousands of people come. And it's, it's, it's 100% unsustainable. And you can't absorb that many people in all at once. And it's, it's, it's just wholly unfair to legal immigrants doing it the right way. How long does the process take for those who are doing it the right way? Oh, it depends on a lot of factors. And it depends on what kind of visa they're applying for. Um, what would be the quickest? Card. You know, I'm not actually sure. All right. How the quickest, yeah, quickest would be. But um, the quickest would be you marry, you marry an American citizen. Um, probably, yeah. uh, or you have some kind of family. So our system right now, it, it rewards, um, is what we call chain migration. You know, it rewards family members who have family members who have family members in the United States, right? This is a problem because it, what it does is it, it only, re it rewards certain countries, right? It rewards everybody south of our border, as opposed to having a more diverse immigration system from around the world. So it, again, it's not fair to me that people can claim asylum rather easily from Central America, but not Africa. Really, like, why? 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 Why do we prioritize them over over Africans? It's you know, in a lot of cases, Africans are definitely being persecuted a lot more. I mean, hundred percent more. Like, it's I don't think there's a question there. So, what about them? You know, like when we when we can't even focus over there or anywhere else in the world because we're completely overwhelmed right now in our process by people who are taking advantage of the system. This is this is this is wholly unjust to actual asylum seekers, actual refugees, and actual legal immigrants. How long do you think it would take, say you could get both parties involved and come to an agreement, how long do you think it would take to implement, don't laugh at that, it's possible. <laughs> I wasn't laughing, I, wasn't, I really wasn't. How long do you think it would take for an implement or uh, something to be implemented that could actually fix that? Because say there was an agreement in government and it's not like, yeah. you know, it's not like tomorrow that solution so, is there. Yeah, if, if, if all of a sudden we all agreed on yeah. asylum process reform, that would have immediate effects. I mean immediate, because that word gets out fast. Oh, the Americans just changed the way so they're doing So you think that. we would have an influx? Uh, the difference would be the number of people who are approaching using that uh, mechanism? Right. Well, if they know they're getting turned around because they don't have a, a, a proper asylum claim, then they're going to stop coming. Uh, so that it would have an immediate effect. I mean, much faster than the walls going up would have. You know, the walls going up are more of a long-term security issue that, that, we, that we do have. Because keep in mind, the, the immigrants coming across are put there by drug cartels. Our drug cartels have complete operational control of the southern border. Complete operational control. Nobody goes across that border without paying them first. Okay. They put about 50 people there. They ask, they, and they, get, they know that border patrol is going to be tied up for a couple hours processing all these people. 
who are all claiming asylum. And then they go around them and they use that distraction to put in the drugs and the people they want to get across undetected, they put them there. So you do need more technology. You do need walls. That, 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 that There's actually legitimate reasons for this. It's a defense in depth issue for sure. I mean, yeah. a wall... A wall, I think it's going to be less effective until there is no gaps in the walls, obviously. And then I don't think, I mean, obviously a 20-foot wall is going to make a 24-foot ladder maker a millionaire overnight. Yeah. And they're going to do, I mean, I was reading. But again, it's mitigating, you know. For sure. Because like, how, yeah. how many people, and what do you do when you're at the top of the wall? You jump, obviously. Yeah, just jump. PLF. Yeah. <laughs> how hard can that be? Which is a parachute landing fall, yeah. which you learn. Well, you didn't learn it because you didn't have to go to airborne school, did you? Well, we did four days of static line jumping and Otai, so we yeah. kind of learned it. I did five days of my left-hand side PLF. Well, look, the, the reality is, Andy, is that us new guys, we're just easier to train because we're smarter. I and, can't and, argue that. Yeah. I'm as dumb as this set of sunglasses on this table. I'd be the first person to admit that. <laughs> Yeah, it's a defense and depth issue. Uh, last question for you, because I'm going to go get a beer. Yeah. How, how far do you want to take it in politics? As far as the American people will have me. No, no, more more precise. Are you going to be running for president one well, day? Well, you can't be more precise because politics is, is there. there's not a pipeline, you know? Um, well, if there is, you're in it. Yeah, I'm definitely in it, wherever <laughs> it is, but it's but it's all it's more of about opportunity. Um, it's, it's about that moment. You know, just just like me running for Congress was really about that moment. It, it wasn't like I, I I've been eyeing this seat for a while. You did it again, nice. Yep, so to speak. <laughs> yep. <laughs> so it, it, it's hard to say, but you know, we'll I will definitely continue to serve. That's uh, there's there's no going back at this point. We're in we're in the game, and um, you know, and I like what I'm doing. I like having a voice and having an effect and, and, and fighting for the ideals that I care about so much. And this is a cultural war just as much as it is a political and policy war. And, uh, and, and, I, and I find that to be, one, extremely fulfilling and extremely important because I care very much about the future of this country. And I want, our, I want the future of this country to be sustainable. And what's not sustainable is promising people more things, telling them that only government can help you. That is not sustainable, never will be. Personal responsibility is an ultimate foundation of our country. And if we don't start to value that again, if we don't start telling people that they're in charge of their own destiny, that they're empowered, and, and that government is simply there to protect your rights to pursue your own happiness, then I have a lot of fear for the future of our country. So I don't plan on getting out of that fight anytime soon. It's a pretty good ending. Thanks. Thanks for the time, man. Of course. It's great to be with you. Ladies and gents, that's it for this week. I hope you enjoyed the conversation. I know I had a blast reconnecting with an old friend. Thank you to everybody who is taking the time to listen to the podcast. I really appreciate those of you who are devoting your time and effort to seek out the content, and specifically those who are taking the time to reach out and give me feedback. So people ask me all the time what it is they could do to help me out when it comes to the podcast. The biggest thing you can do is go to iTunes and write a review. And all I can say is write what you think of the podcast. If you think it sucks, give that sucker one stars or zero if they'll let you and say it sucks. And if you think it's good, uh, you know, write whatever you want to and rate it as whatever you want to. But those numbers actually help me. And other than that, uh, I guess all you really can do is fly the flag with the Cleared Hot Podcast apparel. And if you're interested in what that pertains... Go to the cleareredhotpodcast.com, click on the store tab, and there you'll see four pretty simple shirts and a zip-up hoodie, which I'm wearing right now, 
Thing's lightweight, but it's actually pretty darn warm. Even though I don't need it because I'm in Texas right now and it's ridiculously hot in this time of year. I don't know how anybody lives here, but that's a topic for a different day. So that is it. Thank you for your time this week. I hope you enjoyed the episode like I've already said, and I'll catch you next week.